Hi there. This is Judith O'Day from George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. And you're listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Greetings, Spice fans. Silk City Hot Sauce is now sponsoring the Dorkening Podcast Network. Our craft sauces are made in Vermont in small, high-quality batches using locally sourced, farm-grown ingredients. Silk City Hot Sauce comes in a variety of heat strengths and killer flavors like Jezebel, Erotic Fever, Mango Madness, and Good Morning Jonestown. And don't forget our newest creation, Hot Syrup. Make no mistake, Spice fans, this is the queen of sweet heat. There's new and unique flavors coming out all the time. Best of all, right now, listeners of the Dorkening Podcast Network can go to SilkCityHotSauce.com and use coupon code DORK. Not only will you get 20% off your order, we'll also throw in a free bottle of hot sauce. That's SilkCityHotSauce.com. Coupon code DORK. Writer David Mish, who worked on such classic TV shows as Mork and Mindy, Police Squad, and Duckman, is embarking on the busiest stretch of his post-career career. He's doing 21 online shows in 15 weeks. The main event in January of 2022 is his biannual five-week course, The World of Musical Satire, Thursdays at 1 p.m. from January 13th to February 10th. Join David as he explores a wide variety of genres and eras, especially America since 1950, including discussions on such greats as Gilbert and Sullivan, Monty Python, Spinal Tap, South Park, and more. Plus, short interviews with such greats as Weird Al Yankovic, Michael Palin, and many more. Tickets for this course can be found at uclaextension.edu. Then, on January 16th at 6 p.m., at the San Miguel Literary Sala Distinguished Speaker Series, you can join David and his special guest, the fabulous Jeff Reno, famous for such things as Meet Joe Black, The West Wing, and Moonlighting. In particular, the episode Atomic Shakespeare, listed as one of TV Guide's top 100 episodes of all time. Tickets to hear him speak on this can be found at sanmiguelliterarysala.org. For more information, visit davidmish.com. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now Podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers Series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. 
I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate come in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a crap on your deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose with your rubber hose. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We are on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast, the show in which we discuss pop culture of the past and how it relates today, as well as helping you introduce young people to all the cool stuff that they missed out on. I'm your host, Rigor, and I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, Chris Esper. How's things, Chris? Things are good on my end. How are you doing? Good, good. Been uh, been busy, but things are good. Yep. Also, I hear you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also joining us today is frequent guest co-host and my sunny boy, Spency. Welcome back, Spence. Hello, thanks for having me. How's life Are you in college? Are you educating your peers on all the cool stuff that they should know about? I'm doing my best. Right now we're, uh, we're on different games that they've missed out on. So. Oh, good. Nice. <laughs> like role-playing games, video games? What kind I, of game? I am slowly introducing the idea of Call of Cthulhu to my friends. Oh, awesome. Nice. Nice. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, folks, welcome to part three of our Universal Frankenstein series. We've pretty much covered all the major Universal horror franchises here from the 1930s and 40s. Uh, there are plenty of other horror films from those decades, not only from Universal, but other movie studios as well, and we'll probably touch on them in future episodes. For now, we're sticking with our recommendation about where to start when getting people interested in horror movies. If you want to stick around at the end of the show, we're going to go over a list of pretty much all the Universal horror films from the 30s and 40s that we've covered, and we'll add that list in the show notes that also has other films that we haven't covered yet, um, and we'll put, put the whole thing in the show notes afterwards. Uh, today, we wrap up the Frankenstein discussion with House of Frankenstein from 1944 and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. 
Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, sir. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now. I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. The uh, juggler vein is severed, not cut, but torn apart as though by powerful teeth. A werewolf. Last night I killed a man. I didn't know what you were doing. But I did. I wanted to kill. I think they're after Dracula. Gustav Niemann escapes from prison along with his hunchbacked assistant, Daniel, for whom he promises to create a new, handsome body. The two murder Professor Lampini, a traveling showman, and take over his horror exhibit. To exact revenge on Burgermaster Hussmann, who had put him in prison, Niemann revives Count Dracula. Dracula seduces Hussmann's granddaughter-in-law, Rita, and kills Hussmann himself. But in a subsequent chase, Niemann disposes of Dracula's coffin, causing the vampire to perish in the sunlight. Niemann and Daniel move on to the flooded ruins of Castle Frankenstein in Viseria, where they find the bodies of Frankenstein's monster and Larry Talbot the Wolfman preserved in ice beneath the castle. Following the events of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where the two combatants were washed away when the nearby dam was destroyed by a villager. Niemann thaws them out and promises to find Talbot a cure for the curse. Niemann's more interested in reviving the monster, though, and exacting revenge on two traitorous former associates than in actually keeping his promises. Talbot transforms into a werewolf and kills a man, sending the villagers into a panic. Niemann and Daniel save a gypsy girl named Ilanka, and Daniel falls in love with her. It's unrequited, however, as Ilanka falls in love with Talbot. Daniel tells Ilanka that Talbot's a werewolf, but she is undeterred and promises Talbot that she will help him. Events reach a crisis point when Niemann revives the monster and Talbot again turns into a werewolf. The werewolf attacks and fatally wounds Ilanka, but she manages to shoot and kill Talbot with a silver bullet before she dies. Daniel blames Niemann and turns on him. The monster intervenes, throws Daniel out of the window, and carries the half-conscious Niemann outside where the villagers chase them into the marshes. There, both the monster and Niemann drown in quicksand. So, first impressions. Chris, was this your first viewing of this movie? It was, yeah, and um, I went into this uh, knowing that this was the movie that came before. 
uh, House of Dracula, which we, of course, already talked about and we watched. So I went into it with that in mind. And uh, I have to say, this movie felt very much like House of Dracula in that there was so much going on. I say that both in a good way and also somewhat of a faulty way. But overall, I really did enjoy this movie. Awesome. Spencey, I know we watched this when you were a kid. Um, and I, if you recall, I have this thing from Universal that I got called The Vault, which is a giant set of, I think it's like two or three books that list every single Universal film up until around, I think, 2000 when I got the book. Um, and do you remember making a list of horror films and we went down that list and watched them all in release order, Spence? I vaguely remember the making of the list, but I don't remember half the movies on there besides the famous ones that I've rewatched. <laughs> Yeah, I just remember you being a little kid painstakingly uh, making this list. It took a long time, and then <laughs> we watched them. <laughs> so do, what's your first impression of this movie? Uh, my first impression of uh, House of Frankenstein, having seen it before, uh, there was a level of nostalgia for me because it was almost like a thing that came from my childhood, even though it came out significantly before me. But I think it's a really, really good movie for its time, and it does a lot of things right. But there are some um, structural issues that, walking away mm. from it, I'm like, that ended rather abruptly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been finding that. You know, um, I definitely saw this on TV as a kid, although I don't have any specific memories of watching it. Um, I think, and actually, what happened recently too is, I, as I grew up, many of the sequels started to blur together. But mm. as I mentioned last episode, I picked it up when it first came out on VHS and uh, picked it up on VHS and watched the shit out of it. I'm sure I saw them all when AMC used to play them as marathons at Halloween, back before AMC actually had commercials and they played their films on cut. Um, but I love this movie. I know there's a lot of uh, problems with it. I think there's a lot of missed mm. opportunities here, but it still holds up much better than some of the other sequels like those infamous mummy movies we talked about. That I agree with you on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those mummy movies, oh man, oh, it just got worse and worse. <laughs> they they really did. It's really sad because I I've, I've been finding that with these other series of movies that they haven't gotten worse and worse. They haven't got any better, but they haven't gotten worse. They stay pretty consistent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, um, Rigor, when you mentioned uh, missed opportunities, I did read. I was looking, I was doing a little bit of research. I did read on the like the Wikipedia page that apparently when this first this movie was first in the works, it was under the title of, I think it was uh, Dracula versus the Wolfman, something like that. So there was a lot of things mm. that were written into it and then written out of it subsequently. That that makes a lot of sense as you watch it, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I did read that, too. I, I was getting confused because Abbott and Costello was under a different title, too, and then I was reading it. I'm like, wait, that isn't an... Oh, I'm on the wrong movie, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, right. <laughs> and even that... The whole House of Dracula thing was confusing me, and I meant... I think I texted you last night. I was going to watch it, and I, I just I just didn't get to it, and so... I didn't get to it either, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> in that one, Cheney shows up again as Talbot, but he's got a mustache. I remember that. And uh, what's his name that played Dracula here? John Carradine showed up again yeah. as Dracula mm -hmm. in that one. But I don't think they actually fought. <laughs> no. And, uh, and, and, uh, and Glenn Strange, was he, did he play the monster yes. in House of Dracula? Yes. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. So this was directed by Earl C. Kenton. We talked about him before. He's done uh, this, this movie and The Ghost of Frankenstein. And Kurt Siodmak wrote it. I, I feel like he actually wasn't phoning it in here. And there was um, a thing I found, I think it was on the Wikipedia also. It said, 
prior to the announcement of House of Frankenstein, a film titled, oh, here it is, a film titled Chamber of Horrors was announced on June 7th, 1943 by the Hollywood Reporter, noting that the cast would include Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., Bela Lugosi, Peter Lorre, Claude Rains, George Zuko, and James Barton, as well as including the characters The Invisible Man, The Mad Ghoul, The Mummy, and other assorted monsters, quote-unquote. Chamber of Horrors never went into production. Kurt Siodmak spoke little on developing the story for the film, stating that the idea was to put all the horror characters into one picture, I only wrote the story. I didn't write the script. I never saw the picture. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's too bad. I mean, the, the, uh, it would have been so cool to have a real monster mashup like that. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Th- I don't think we've gotten one yet from, from this collection of movies. We probably we probably did at some point later on, like over the years, but not during the not during these um, this time period when these movies were released. Right. Right. Um, one of the other writers, the guy who actually wrote the screenplay, is Edward T. Lowe, and he previously wrote scripts for The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 23 and The Vampire Bat in 33, and he's the one who changed um, parts of Shodmak's story, including removing the mummy Karis. That would have been cool to have Karis. Yeah, well, and, and, well, and all, it, he also wrote House of Dracula as well. That's right, that's right. Yeah. So... Uh, we've got a great cast here, of course. Boris Karloff as Dr. Gustav Niemann, who is like, he's got this kind, he's kind of gentleman malevolence, and he just turns it sinister at the, all the right moments. I thought he was very scary. Yeah, definitely was. Although I did find it kind of weird seeing him in a movie in which uh, a different actor is playing Frankenstein and Karloff is right there. I was like, hmm, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> Spence, what did you think of Karloff's performance here? I I thought it was really, really good. I thought that for what he was working with, he did a great job. Like you said, he turned scary at all the right moments. And he, uh, you know, throughout the movie, he does this, this lovely thing where he'll tell people that he'll help them. And then they do something for him. And then he uh, puts it off. Oh, I'll, I'll help yeah. you, Daniel. Oh, I'll help you, Talbot. And then by the end, he has done none of that. Right. He's <laughs> like, screw you guys. Right. <laughs> Of course, Lon Chaney Jr. reprises his role as Lawrence Stewart Talbot, the Wolfman. Um, I I felt that it was a shame that he didn't get enough screen time um, to ad- advance his character arc beyond Werewolf Sucks, Wanna Die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it would have been cool if they if they developed the relationship between him and the Gypsy Girl. You know, yeah, that see that was one of the missed opportunities in this movie was that whole section of Wolfman and. Uh, as we'll talk about, uh, Dracula as well was uh, felt like a missed opportunity just on the whole throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. He didn't even get to meet the Wolfman or the monster. It would have been nice yeah, to see no. the tangle, you know? Right, right. Speaking of Dracula, of course, John Carradine again. Um, I guess due to an obligation, Bela Lugosi wasn't able to play Dracula. They wanted him to play Dracula, but mm. he had some kind of scheduling or contract issues or something. Mm. Um, but we did see Carradine before in The Invisible Man's Revenge and The Mummy's Ghost, as well as, if you recall, in last episode, we mentioned him here a bit part as the Lost Hunter in Bride of Frankenstein. That's right, yeah. So he's just got that distinctive voice. I mean, I he's one of those actors, whenever I hear him on TV, like even I, I don't have to see him to know that it's him. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, what do you think about those guys, Spence? Uh, I have, I mean, I've seen Lon, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. He's the one who sticks out in my brain constantly. 
Uh, he'll never, yeah. he'll never, you know, not be the Wolfman to me. Um, uh, Boris Karloff does a great job, as we said. And John Carradine, this is really the only time that I've really seen him as Count Dracula. I haven't seen House of Dracula enough to remember it. Uh, yeah. So I, I yeah. can't make a full... Uh, I do remember the mustache. That does stick in my brain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember Lon Chaney Jr.'s mustache. But I right. don't remember much of, much of the actual plot of the movie. So for what, he, what, for what he was doing as Count Dracula, every time he was on the screen, it was really, really interesting and fun. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And of course, J. Carroll Nash as friend Daniel. Um, he was in. He was a very um, well-known character actor. He was in Bo Jest, uh, the film Sahara with Humphrey Bogart, Doctor Renault's Secret, and of course, he was famously in the Al Adamson film Dracula vs. Frankenstein in 1971, which sadly was his last movie. And mm. it's one of those movies that's really bad, yet people can't stop talking about it. <laughs> Dracula vs. Frankenstein. Yeah. I actually have a I have a copy of it on VHS. I watched it a long time ago, and I'm just like I'm like well, I'm like wow, this is pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> a... <laughs> oh my god, I have that on DVD, and I actually yeah. I remember seeing it as a kid. I think my I don't know my father took me to his work or something, or my parents were there at his work, and he had this tiny yeah. little black and white TV, and I watched it on that. It was on like Creature Double Feature or something. I think I found a copy of it. I went to. Um... Uh, some kind of like a thrift store, like something like a Savers or like a Goodwill, something like that. And uh, this was around the time when VHS tapes were starting to become like more niche, like collectibles, because they they weren't being released anymore. It was all DVD or digital or what have you. Uh, and I found a copy of, and I saw the cover, and I'm like, that is a really cool fucking cover. Yeah. <laughs> but then. You put in the tape, and you're like, this movie is nothing like that cover. Right. <laughs> and it's really too bad. Oh, man. Those days are gone, too, when you would go to the video store, and the cover would be what sold it for you. Right, and right. And you took it home, and nine times out of ten, it was a piece of crap. But... Oh, yeah. I, what, wasn't that a, uh, wasn't it a, um, a uh, Hammer film? Or no? No. Uh, oh, okay. I, I thought it was, it was for some reason. Independent film. Gotcha. Yeah, it looked like one. <laughs> the sound was bad. The... Cinematography, like you couldn't even see anything. The lighting was like just so dark. It yeah. was so poor. Yeah. Yeah. Al Adamson was the director who he made a bunch of bad movies. Some of them are, are better than others, but um, he's the dude who he wanted to have like a pool put in his house, and there was this drifter that he happened to bump into or something, and turned out the guy said he was a contractor, so he hired this guy to put the pool in, and I don't know how many weeks later. Uh, a neighbor or something comes over and they say, oh, where's Al? We haven't seen him in a while. And he's like, oh, oh, he went on vacation or something. And, you know, he wanted me to install this pool, but then he decided against it, so I'm filling this hole up with cement. Come to find out, he killed Adamson and buried him under the cement. No. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> wow. It was terrible. I mean, that's something, like, right out of one of his own movies, you know? I was going to say, that could be a movie. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> But anyways, oh, J. J. Carroll Nash, who played Daniel, he was the first actor to play a villain to fight Batman in the old movie serials. He played a character called Dr. Daka, which I don't think mm. is from the comics. Hmm. Do you remember, uh, Spence, when you were little, you used to talk about Daniel? He's uh, the best character in this whole movie. Yes. He did, you know, J. Carroll Nash did an excellent job. Oh, yeah. Personally. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. 
Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say one quick thing about his performance. Was it just me, or there were some moments where I could swear he his facial expressions, some of his body language and movement and whatnot, just overall performance and voice, had shades of Peter Lorre. There were moments I was like, wow, he looks like Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah, and he did almost have that kind of same voice, too. Yeah, I was like, I was like, oh, it's that's kind of eerie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did a lot of good work in this with his, you know, his facial expressions and stuff. And, like, when he sees, what's her name, Ilanka with Talbot and how they're starting to grow closer, and you could just see what he's feeling, like, right on his face. Yeah, yeah, totally. So we've also got, of course, as we mentioned, Glenn Strange, who plays the Frankenstein monster. He's a six foot five inch, honest to, go- honest to gosh, real life cowboy and singer. He was in a ton of westerns and serials, as well as The Lone Ranger Rides Again and Riders of Death Valley. But his massive stature got him the role as the Frankenstein monster after Karloff decided he didn't want to play it anymore. And as we mentioned, he was in House of Dracula, this movie, and also plays it again in um, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which we'll talk about in the next half of the show. Um, and people may remember he played Sam the Bartender on Gunsmoke for 12 years, hmm. the long-running Gunsmoke. You know, he's the guy, a lot of times when they somebody tries to post a picture of Karloff's Frankenstein, they accidentally post the, the Glenn Strange Frankenstein. I can see why that would happen, yeah. It's so funny. It's like us, us yeah. monster kids, though, will look at it and go, wait, that's not Karloff. Right. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, you can look him in the face and, and see it. I could see the difference. Well, I think I do actually remember pointing that out as a difference. Uh, when we like moved from one movie to the other and it, we moved from Karloff to Glenn Strange, I was like, oh, wow, he looks different. But they kind of like sort of established that he had a different brain at some point. So I was like, OK, I guess that checks out. <laughs> well, even, <laughs> even before that, in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, it was uh, Lugosi who played the monster, and we talked about this last episode, oh, yeah. and it kind of made sense because Igor's brain got put into the monster's body at the end of, was it Ghost of Frankenstein, I think? I think it was, was it Bride of Frankenstein? No, definitely wasn't Bride, it definitely wasn't Sun, because Igor was in Sun, and the monster fell into the sulfur pit, and then, yeah, so it was the Ghost of Frankenstein. Where he, yeah. he's like, I am Igor, and I fooled you all. And then all of a sudden, I can't see. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the whole blind yeah. thing. Because, you, you know, science. Right. Because <laughs> the blood types didn't match, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weird. Um, you would think it would just completely reject the brain altogether, not just his right. eyes. Right, not just the eyesight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've rounding out the cast here. We've got Anne Gwynn, who played Rita Husman, who was in a bunch of movies, including the Green Hornet movie serials. Uh, Peter Coe played Carl Husman, who was her husband. Uh, he was in a lot of movies and TV shows, including Mission Impossible, The Invaders, 12 O'Clock High, It Takes a Thief. And I noticed his last movie is one that I always enjoyed, um, Vigilante Force from 1976 with Chris Christopherson and J. Michael Vincent. Huh. That was a cool movie. It was like this, basically this sound discovers oil, and then all of a sudden things get out of control because everybody wants the oil or something, and so Chris Christopherson and J. Michael Vincent, Vin- Vincent become vigilantes to stop the crime. Huh. Um, then, if, as we mentioned, oh, I don't know if we mentioned, uh, Lionel Atwell shows up here as mm-hmm. Inspector Arntz. And we talked about him numerous times. Spence, you might remember he was in, was it, I think it was uh, Bride of Frankenstein or Son of Frankenstein. He was the cop that had the, the phony arm that he had to keep moving with his other arm. Oh, I vaguely remember that. That they spoofed that in, in Young Frankenstein. 
I don't remember um, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> what, Young Frankenstein? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, we're going to have to have you one. back on when we talk about that one because that's such nah. a classic. Mm. George Zuko, of course, plays Professor Bruno Lampini. So a small role in this, uh, but we saw him as Ando Heb in The Mummy's Hand. And he's an actor, I feel, who's on par with Sir Cedric Hardwick. Um, this guy was in almost 100 movies, so he's a very well, you know, well-respected character actor. And then uh, Elena Verdugo as the uh, gypsy chick Ilanka. Most baby boomers probably remember her um, from her pleasant, pleasant, plain, but rather dowdy Emmy-nominated role as Consuelo Lopez, um, who was Robert Young's uh, aide-de-camp on the series Marcus Welby. Marcus Welby, M.D., which ran a long time. Mm. Um, so, originally, as we mentioned, Karis the Mummy, another universal classic monster, was to be in the movie, but was removed, I guess, they, they claim from budget restrictions. Interesting. Yeah. There's, a few, there's a few other restrictions I noticed throughout the movie that would have really, really uh, struggled to have Karis the Mummy show up. <laughs> Sorry, there, there's a few. It, it would have been, like, too episodic, because they probably wouldn't even have had them all together, you know? Yeah. Well, the, the, oh, God. I was, yeah, that, that's my, my big complaint with this movie, is it suffers from Spider-Man 3-itis, uh, where it tries to do too many things. There's a whole section where mm. we have Dracula, and, like, you know, that's, a, that's a really engaging. But then he dies <laughs> completely. Right. It's not like, oh, he died and, you know, Neiman got his body or whatever. Like, he died and that was it. We don't see him for the rest of the movie. And that was about 30 minutes in. And now Neiman is moving on to more monsters. And we don't even see the Wolfman or Frankenstein actually meet again. There's Talbot in the same scene. But the Wolfman goes off and does his thing. And he gets killed. And... It just it just gets it just end, would it just ended so fast and it, it actually I thought it worked out with the characters and how uh, what what Daniel did to Nemon and the and the monster but they needed to establish a little bit more in my opinion and if they had Karis the mummy it would have either cemented everything together or it would have fallen apart. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you make a good point because one of the notes I actually did write down was that this movie feels like a hodgepodge with like, it feels like two or three different movies, none of which really connect or come together. It's real. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. But as far as like the opening of the movie, I mean, as expected, it's very atmospheric, you know, just like as we've seen for the rest of these. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, um... What was the one we? Oh, the Wolfman. I think of all these movies is the most atmospheric. But yeah, um, this one's you know no slouch. You know, like we said, it's 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 a weak, weaker sequel, but it's not as terrible as it could have been. Um, again, mm. as we we've sort of reiterated, a lot of missed opportunities, and yeah, throwing Karis in would have probably if it had to have been it would have to have been a different story completely mm. in order for yeah. it to work. <laughs> so. Neiman, he's going to put the brain of a hated enemy into the body of the Frankenstein monster. Brilliant. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, was, I was curious. I'm like, so is, is the lore of the Frankenstein monster, if your brain goes into it, do you just kind of become very suggestible as the monster has always been? Because um, I thought the whole point was that the brain originally was a mindless brute who was going around killing people. And now we're going to put somebody who has a personality and stuff and isn't psychotic. 
Well, <laughs> yeah, Chris and I, Chris, you and I talked about that, I think, in one of the yeah. shows. And I think the conclusion we sort of agreed on was that if the person's dead, their soul is gone. So when you slap the brain in, it's it's got all the memories of, like, tying your shoe and, you know, lighting a match, all that stuff. But it doesn't mm. have personality so it's sort of like a newborn almost. Yeah, that's how I would have thought of it too. So I find it interesting how the consci- the consciousness, if you, as it were, of the previous person that inhabited the brain would transfer into the new that into the new body. Like that, I don't really see how that would work. <laughs> Although they did it, of course, with Igor, at least at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then after well, that, they ignored it. <laughs> not only do they ignore it, but again blind from the blood. I'm like, uh, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know, but, Oh, go ahead. I, I was just, uh, there, there was one uh, amazing moment in the script where, um, the inhabitants of the village of Frankenstein talk about, uh, Oh, a few years ago, the flood washed away the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster. And we haven't seen them since. And to me, that is just, I know I'm sure it was a small thing for them when they were making this movie, and I'm not sure if it was a true design choice, but I, that to me just cemented the fun of watching movies and then seeing sequels. It's like, oh, I get rewarded for see, for having, for knowing what they're talking about and, you know, getting a quick flash of the, you know, the scary factor that is the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster going toe to toe and the fact that Nemon wants to bring them back. I love yeah. that. I thought that was really yeah. good. And that tells me is like it's a it's a full sequel to um Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So, you know, whatever happened in Ghost of Frankenstein, if that's relevant in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, then it then it matters. But if not, then I just think of it like that. Yeah. I think Ghost yeah. came before Wolfman and then before and then that came before Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, but Ghost and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman are connected because only because of what we just said, because Igor's brain is now in the monster's body, but he's blinded, which is why that yeah. Frankenstein monster walks with his arms out in front of him. And I almost yeah. wonder, too, just sort of circling back to our discussion about what happens to the brain when it's put in the monster's body, is maybe it did have Igor's personality for a short time, and then after a while that dissipates, and he becomes this yeah. blank template. Yeah, I I did read um, when in my small bit of research that the reason they kept the... Um, the uh, motif of the monster walking around with his arms like that uh, was because of the fact that Karloff kind of like made that a staple for Frankenstein and they just weren't going to get rid of it. Oh, interesting. I don't... Interesting. He didn't really do that all that much in Frankenstein. It wasn't until, I think it was, it was Karloff's... Yeah, it wasn't until Karloff's later movies as Frankenstein and when they finally moved over to Glenn Strange the whole like half asleep look was something Karloff coined and Glenn Strange just emulated that. Yeah. Well, definitely mm. Karloff and, um, had those, I don't know, something put into his upper eyelids to give him that sort of half asleep look. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting too that Neiman mentions that his brother assisted Dr. Frankenstein. So was his brother Fritz from the first Frankenstein movie? Was it Igor who assisted son of Frankenstein, you know, Wolf? Or was it um, Lionel Atwell's character who assisted the second son of Frankenstein? They don't really elaborate on that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it would be kind of... It would almost make sense if either Fritz or Igor was his brother because that would explain why he hangs out with Daniel, maybe because 
Daniel was a f- hunchback friend of these other hunchbacks. <laughs> yeah, they go to the clubs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the hunchback bar. The hunchback bar. All right, it's the weekly hunchback meeting. Who wants to say something? Igor, you got something to say. <laughs> Igor, Hi, I'm Igor. Yeah. Hi, Igor. <laughs> oh, man. Hi, I'm Igor, and I'm a hunchback. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Burgermaster, of course, is named Herr Husman, which was a name used in a previous film. Wasn't he the father of the little girl in Ghost of Frankenstein? I Yes, actually, yeah. Yeah. I thought that yeah. was interesting that they just reuse character names for different characters. Right. <laughs> But this is where the trope of pulling the stake out of the vampire's heart brings him back to life. I believe this is the first time we've seen that happen. That didn't happen in any of the Dracula movies. Yeah. Well, it's well. The other thing I want to add about that moment too is uh, when that did happen, the transition, the cross dissolves of of uh, Dra- Dracula, you know, resurrecting. That actually kind of worked uh, in this movie. I was uh, surprised to see that. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. Mm. You know, it's funny, uh, when Dracula tries to hypnotize Nemon, it doesn't, it almost works, and then all of a sudden Nemon snaps out of it, and, and um, what's his name, uh, Dracula's going, drop that stake from your hand, and uh, Karloff resists him, and basically holds it up and threatens that he's going to, you know, I guess what, push it into his chest and kill him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it is what it is. For, for what the movie is. It was a cool effect when they brought him back because you got to like see the nervous yeah. system and the blood vessels. and then That it, was cool. And then yep. his yeah. body formed. His, so did his clothes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of the things that we talked about, too, on, on another episode about uh, how when the Wolfman changes, his clothes also change. We're like, wait, how? <laughs> how does that work? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, actually... Not to get too far on a tangent, but it is the um, the role playing game Spence and I've played called um, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and you can do this um, thing called gifting, where basically, um, if you don't control your you know werewolf, uh, you know turning into a werewolf, you can gift your pants to yourself. <clears throat> There's like some kind of a magic ritual involved, so that when you change, the pants disappear, maybe become like a, a stripe on your back or something. Uh, of huh. color, and then when you return to human, the pants reappear. Hmm. I just thought it was funny. I, at first, when I was watching it this time around, I thought Dracula introduced himself as Baron Lactose. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Baron Lactose. Okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, I suppose it's, you know, just having a completely different name is better than just spelling his name backwards. True. But yeah, as you said, you know, this film has some great atmosphere. But the thing about Dracula is he can't get a chick without hypnotizing her. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I, I, well, I, I, on that note, I was um, reading this book. It was a third-party tabletop role-playing book for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. And there was a whole section on, like, love magic and basically pointing out that when you role-play this out, it's manipulation. It's not real. Like, <laughs> like you should not be like confusing this when you're playing the game. So that's stuck in my head of like, so that's basically what Dracula is doing. He doesn't care right. what he's doing. Yeah. That's the fundamental evil of it. He doesn't care what he's doing. So as long as he, she does what he wants, who cares? Oh, I'd like to also point out, here's another problem with the movie. What happened to them? 
we don't go back to them at all. We don't know if she survived the crash that Dracula went off with. We don't know if if anything else happened. We don't know what the cops did with his body. We know nothing about right. it. Just, the Dracula saga did, ended. Did the father become a vampire, you know? I, I don't think so. <laughs> well... Well, there there were there were two fairly good moments uh, during this whole Dracula section. Like, there's a moment where um, you know where Rita is uh, coming out to like a balcony or something like that, um, and like the the framing of that shot is really cool. How you can see Dracula in the mm. distance through through the two pillars. Yeah, I'm like I'm like I'm like wow. I'm like that. I'm like that is a good shot as she comes through. You know, and then all that happens, but. That whole chase that follows that, like when they're tr- when when he's trying to get away from them, uh, did you guys notice that a lot of the shots were day for night? Like, yes. like it looked like it looked like it was like the sun just like beaming right on top of the right. on the carriages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, I'm like, I had to rewind it. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely was was uh, poor day for night. You know, they could have yeah. put a better filter over the lens or something, but maybe it would get too dark. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, Dracula has an early exit, like like we like we said. Yeah, which is yeah, too bad. Although the phony bat that bites her, um, at least they showed it in shadow. They had the decency not to show the actual phony bat. True. Yep. Yeah. No, that was that was scary. Um, I would just I just have a question thinking about it. What plot service does Dracula have? Because all he does, <laughs> the only thing he does that matters for Nemon's story is kill the Burgermeister, which. Even Daniel could have done that. So, right. what plots? Right. What, they they had Dracula because they wanted you know to have Dracula in it and stuff like that. Which I mean, I get it. It works. It makes sense for the time and what they were doing. But I was just like, I was walk. I was when you know when that part ended. I was like, wow, that's that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I was hoping it's he just, would show up. Yeah. I couldn't remember if he shows up at the end. I'm like, oh, that would be really cool if you know he he they. They set his body aside, and he came back the next night, but right. well, he didn't. Well, you know, well, you know, it's interesting. I feel like in this movie, Dracula has about as much to do with the plot of this movie as the Wolfman did in House of Dracula. Is what I noticed. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like they're kind of structured the same way, both movies, in that way, where it's like multiple characters. One character appears and disappears very quickly, and the rest of it focuses on this whole other plot. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Oh man. And you know, it's funny we talked about hunchbacks. Uh, the lesson that we should have learned from the hunchback at Notre Dame was that no matter what the hunchback does to help the girl, <laughs> she'll always end up with the handsome main character. Said, said, but true. But you know, I love that scene where he, where Daniel saves her for the first time. I mean, that that was just that was a nice scene. And one of the things that had me thinking about this, about all these movies, when I saw that moment, is like one of the great things about these movies is how the monsters and main characters in these movies. They're not really the true monsters, but rather society is the monster, and the creature is more human than any of them. I, I, like that's one of the things I took away, not just from watching that moment, but as we talk about these movies, um, I found myself thinking about that. Like, wow, it's really interesting how these characters are more human than the humans that inhabit the story. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. true. I mean, yeah, I would add on to that with the fact that every time you know one of the monsters kills somebody in this movie, at least, it's so warranted. Like, you know, he finally kills yeah. Daniel, who's, you know, murdered multiple people with uh, the monster. And when um when the Wolfman uh, killed that, you know, that guy off screen and that kind of sent the uh, villagers into a panic, there's this whole two minute interaction where he describes how he 
he he hates that this happens and that he has no control over himself and he you know this whole like very sad sequence of why that poor man got killed so this, yeah, this very yeah. humanizing moment that it wasn't it wasn't this like you know malicious intent it was this this uncontrollable curse doesn't he even say yeah. though at one point like i i wanted to kill but it was uncontrollable, but it was like he felt that the urge. I like to think of it as um, uh, I, have a, I have a funny, funny moments with in tabletop role playing where one of my friends is a werewolf. And basically my understanding is that it's they're mostly conscious, like he is mostly aware of what's going on. Like the the curse isn't like a different person. It's not Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He he's well aware. Lawrence Talbot remembers killing people at least as time goes on and once he starts getting adapted to the curse that I've found and he, you know, knows that he wants to go out and do that and there's no stopping it is my yeah, understanding. Yeah, he's not in control. Mm. He may be conscious, but he's like, you know, taking a back seat while someone else is piloting his body. He's he's raging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's, it's the werewolf the apocalypse reference, but that's basically what it is. He's is. He's gone into a frenzy and there's no stopping it. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Oh man, and it's funny they they changed the spelling of Viseria in this one, and I, we noticed last episode we were reading one of the synopsis and it was spelled differently within the synopsis. So I, I guess nobody can agree on how to spell. It's either V A S A R I A or V I S A R I A. It's it's it, Viseria. It's Viseria. very conven- yeah. convenient that they camp near the signs that tell them how far they are from Viseria. <laughs> 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 I get the plot use of it, but it's still very funny. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. At least it's a little bit of continuity, though, you know? <laughs> True. True. <laughs> but this is where I remember first hearing the monster referred to as the Undying Monster. That's what when um, Nemon sees him for the first time. He's like, ooh, the Undying Monster. And I, mm. I did. I mentioned this in previous installments because now it all makes sense that he he's basically can't be destroyed unless you literally dissect him piece by piece or blow mm. him up, blow him to bits. Because mm. um, they, what was the one we saw? Was it Son of Frankenstein where he X-rayed him and there's like five bullets in his chest and all these lacerations yes. on his bones mm-hmm. and stuff. Yep, I remember that. Yep, but no, it's true. That's that's actually a very true statement to refer to him as the undying monster. Yeah. And yeah. the lightning is his mother, you know, so. Oh, yeah, right. There's, yeah, there's this whole um, this whole sequence. Whenever there, you see Nemon inside the cart with the Frankenstein monster after you got him out of the um, ice block, he's talking about how there's damage to the tissue from the cold, that it's it started to eat away at him a little bit. So yeah. he, he doesn't want that oh, to yeah. happen. And I'm like, wow, that's a really neat detail to include. Yeah. I'm like, huh. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's one of these instances where their pseudo the writer's pseudoscience actually kind of works. <laughs> it's true because half yeah. the time they make this shit up and it doesn't make any sense. At, at least with like the the science, if you say okay, lightning makes bodies come back to life, cool, we can work with that, and they've kept that. I just care about the continuity more than the yeah more than the actual pseudoscience. I watch giant monster movies for Christ's sake. Like yeah. as long as the, as long as the science is consistent and everything works within the the realm of fiction, I'm really into it. So I was I was kind of happy about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What I want to know though is how did Nemo know that Talbot had sought out Dr. Frankenstein for help? He was in jail. How did yeah, he but... know? How did he know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how did he know? <laughs> I, I don't uh... <laughs> it's like he had seen the movie, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, hold on. Did he find out about the Wolfman 
before or after he had gotten to the village because they the village told him yeah the wolfman was there a few years ago i'm not sure if that's a moment in the <sighs> script writing he might have known he might have known beforehand but i do I, I remember them telling him so that might be the moment that pops into my head maybe maybe mm. but what's what's kind of a blooper at least a continuity error is that cuz talbot says Dr. Frankenstein, he tells Neman, Dr. Frankenstein became too obsessed with the monster to help me in uh, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. But in that movie, he doesn't meet Dr. Frankenstein at all. He meets the daughter, and it's the, the doctor that, you know, Frank, I forget what his full name was, is the one. Remember, he's the one, I can't do it. I can't destroy Frankenstein's creation. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he says Dr. Frankenstein was the one because he does. Oh, he mention- does. I wrote it down. Does he? Because uh, he does yeah. mention that. Oh, when I got there, he was already dead. Uh, I have to go back and look at it again, though. Because <laughs> I, I could swear he, he said Doctor Frankenstein became too obsessed with the monster to help me. But all right, we'll have to look that one up. We'll put a pin in that one. Um, but then, of course, you know, Neman's solution to Talbot is build him a new brain to lift the curse. What? What yeah. the fuck? Yeah, like, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, because like because the curse. Why is it only limited to just the brain? That can't be right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for all and, intents and purposes, you could just argue that Neman has been lying the whole time, so he's just bullshitting his way around. Could be, yeah, true, true. Probably will believe yeah. anything he well, says. Well, I mean, he promises uh, Daniel a new brain. He promises, uh, yeah, you know, Talbot. So, yeah, probably just bullshitting his way. He promised the much. Tin Man a new heart, you know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But it's like, so, all right. So, at the end of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, um, the dam is broken. Water floods into the castle, knocks the two monsters, you know, into underground where they get frozen. How is it that the journal was hidden in yet another secret place behind the giant yeah. stone? Yeah. Wouldn't, you know, wouldn't Dr. Frank, whatever his name is, like, have had the journal out so he can refer to it while he's doing the experiment? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> I can't remember. Is that, Did they get it from that same spot in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? No, no, because it was, um, he found this, the, the monster showed him a secret room, which was a door that you could, you could walk into it, he had to hunch down, but then Frankenstein's daughter comes in, she goes into that secret room and reaches up and pulls a, a ring on a string, and it pulls another secret door within the secret room, and that's where the journal was. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So, it was nothing at all like the, the giant block that, like, Talbot has to, has to wrestle, I mean, obviously, as a human, he's still rather strong. Because yeah. he's the wolf man. Because that thing looked fucking heavy. <laughs> all right, all right. I've just, uh, I've, I've just re- gotten, gotten in my, my Google Drive and uh, re, re House of Frankenstein when Talbot shows up and just kind of quickly scroll through the scene and, uh, and just to get the, um, what he said. And uh, there's a whole point where Nimon says, "Oh, well, you talked to this other doctor who said he was going to help you." And I think that oh. was that was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and Talbot goes, "No, he became too too obsessed with the monster to help me." Okay, all right, my bad. Ah, uh, okay. I think yeah. they, I think they they were at least a, enough script writing continuity to have. Oh well, hold on, this is the movie that led up to it. Let's at least okay, establish good. this all character right. slightly. <laughs> that uh, restores my faith a tad bit in the writers here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if this movie wasn't the product of like two other good ideas. 
and was just kind of bits and pieces of good ideas that weren't necessarily well put together, it would be a probably a have we'd have a very different opinion on it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot to like about this movie. I mean, the gypsy chick was so freaking hot, man. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, I was going to say that, yeah, she was a nice standout character. And, like, you know, the actress that played her, her name is escaping me now. Uh, but uh, I, I, I thought she was very cute in this movie. Yeah. She's, yeah. Um, I've got it right here. Um, she was yeah, Elena Verdugo. She was the one right. I said okay. was, um, she played uh, Marcus Welby's assistant on Marcus right. Welby MD. Right, right, right. Um, but, of course, we get another lab cleanup montage. Um, always nice. But she, yeah. <laughs> always nice. Yep. <laughs> she uses, though, the. I guess because she's a gypsy, she knows the whole uh, even a man who is f- pure and hot phrase. But then she adds that he can only be killed by a silver bullet fired from the hand of someone who loves him enough to understand. That was never in the original. At least in the movie, I mean. No, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if that. I mean. The only logical explanation is the fact that she, you know, is like Melina from the first Wolfman. Uh, Maliva. You know, uh, Maliva, sorry, I keep calling her Melina. <laughs> she comes, you know, they come from the same cultural background, so it could be a, it could be a diversification in, in the culture, and they're two different sections of the same thing, or there's something evolved, some thoughts evolved because of what happened to Lawrence Talbot. I don't know. Right. Right. And it's interesting too because. It says a silver bullet, but his father killed him with a silver-headed cane. So that's right. It's yeah. just silver. That, but I, the I, father obviously was someone who loved him enough to understand, even though he didn't really believe it was his son. Yeah. I, yeah, I, th- I think it's. I think the the key word is loved them enough to understand, not that they did. Yeah. But it's about like who you know who really kills the it the you know the wolfman can only be killed by somebody who you know <clears throat> really does love that person. Right. Until he's brought back to life in the next movie. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Right? <laughs> now, Spence, do you remember this? That Daniel says, um, uh, he goes, she hates me because I'm an ugly hunchback. And when you were little, there was this girl at school or something I, that was a friend of yours. And <laughs> your mother goes, does she like you or something like that? And you said that line. You're like, she hates me because I'm an ugly hunchback. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds That's like funny. me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> sounds an awful lot like me. I probably said it to that girl. <laughs> I, I, probably. I, I don't remember any of those details, but that sounds exactly like me. <laughs> that so... story, I, I'm sorry, but that story didn't take a turn I was expecting. I thought I thought the story was going to be that you referred to the girls as ugly hunchback. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not that bad. I was going to say, my goodness. <laughs> At least not back then, no. Yeah, I probably would have said something like that as a kid. <laughs> oh my god! But the, you know, Daniel the Hunchback whips the monster yet again. Another person after that amazing scene, like you said, where he rescues Ilanka and whips the shit out of that guy. Yeah. Then he's at this point. I felt like the monster was no longer a character that would develop. He's just a plot tool. Oh yeah. I mean, but he's the For goal. Sure. He's the goal of the entire movie. The whole point is the House of Frankenstein. It's about, you know, the, I, th- I like to think of it as the lineage of Dr. Frankenstein is really what it's implying. Like, right. Like the House yeah. of L for Superman stuff. So I'd like to think it's more like, you know, the fact that the whole goal is getting the monster and, you know, understanding and replicating the monster. And that just never happens. Right. 
but but my point was that when we watched um you know uh Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein Son of Frankenstein and even in the Ghost of Frankenstein there was a development of his character he kind of went from childhood to adulthood through those four movies by the fourth one he learned not to kill people unless he absolutely had to um he was you know he could speak in the second one which he he lost that but he was developing as an actual character and like you said at this point he is just the goal he's just uh, a receptacle so that they can toss somebody's brain into him and he's no longer quite as sympathetic except for the fact that he can't control anything in his life like everybody just basically I, you know bosses him around yeah. yeah there was a couple of details i noticed um because i did remember you know the the final details of the movie so i was i was watching the monster whenever him and Dr. Nimon and Daniel were on the screen. Daniel whips him. They fade away from that and continue on. And this whole point where when the, the monster wakes up, he like leers at Daniel and uh, Neiman like kind of calms him down and stuff. He kind of looks at him. And I don't yeah. know if it was intentional, but there's this like weird moment where he kind of like looks like, like kind of sizes him up and accepts that this person is calming him down. And then, uh, you know, at the end, by the time that, you know, everything's going to shit, uh, Daniel is right next to the monster. The monster, you know, is like, this is the asshole that whipped me, picks him up, right. throws him out the window. And, <laughs> and not to mention, he also just witnessed Daniel strangle Dr. Nimon, who's wearing probably a, a very close outfit to Dr. Frankenstein. Right. Yeah. So I, I yeah. like to think that there's this like, you know, understanding of the character that doesn't need to be explored in the script writing. Cause most people who are watching this movie have just watched, just like you guys, the last, like, five movies with Frankenstein in it. Yeah. Yeah, what was the one... Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was... I think it was Son of Frankenstein, where he... There's a painting of Henry Frankenstein on the wall, and Basil Rathbone plays the son, and there's a moment where the monster looks at him and looks at the painting, and he, you could tell, without any words, that he could see the resemblance, and that he knew that that guy was going to try and help him. Yeah. I love mm -hmm. little things like that. I mean, in, in terms of little details, too, I loved the whole footprint thing with the Wolfman. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, oh yeah, that was cool. Yeah, and, like, how the camera just sort of, like, whip pans right across the field, and then uh, suddenly he's the Wolfman. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, did it have shoes, or was it bare human feet into bare wolf feet? It was. It was bare, right. it was bare feet. He didn't yeah, have okay. shoes. There's, cool. a, there's a good point where, uh, since the first Wolfman, I've noticed he takes his shoes off very intelligently. Takes right. his shoes off before <laughs> every every transformation. The first one is like, you know, he's he's upset and stuff like that. And then I think by like more than one transformation, he would probably realize, ah, um, yeah, it would destroy my shoes. So if I want to keep these, right, I, or at least not leave evidence that I tra transformed into a werewolf. Um, you know, I want to, you know, take my shoes off and stuff. But he, I think he also kind of gets that there's a whole point where he wakes up in the same clothes as he goes to Wolfman out in. So it's like, it's not like, you know, where of the apocalypse or even like the Resident Evil, not Resident Evil, um, oh my God, uh, the um, Underworld franchise where they oh, become right. these big werewolves, yeah. uh, you right. know, and they're, they're clothes tear. Like that doesn't happen for him. So it's a little reasonable when he wakes up in his clothes. Well, we mentioned that. I, I brought it up in, like, the last episode, I think, when we talked about the Wolfman, is that he basically doesn't go beyond Glabro form. Yeah. He doesn't go full-on Krinos, which is the upright dog, humanoid dog, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. This, this, I love the lore of the, the 
original franchise with the the Universal monsters and the Wolf, yeah. the Wolf Man and how yeah. that, all that works and stuff. And it's just fun to see, like as we've been doing, we've been picking up where things first happened, and this is the first time they pulled the stake from Dracula, you know, and this is the first time they said this, and of course, this is not the first time that we've had angry villagers because we get more angry villagers. <laughs> of course, we know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, a Wolf Man will do that to you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I love how Ilanka knows she has to kill Talbot, but when he's human, she tries, and she just can't bring herself to do it. That was a strong moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, we get a full-face transformation here, which was cool, and of course, <laughs> she's right outside the door. It's a double door to the room. One of them is open, and what does he do? He crashes through the one that's not open. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yep, that checks out. Yep. <laughs> that, that checks but out. But then, you know, he goes after her, and this, the scene is sort of one of those ones that I feel like it was a, sign, a product of its time because, you know, clearly he, at the very least, ripped her throat out before she got the shot off. But there's no blood anywhere, of course, because the yeah, movie's right, 1944. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and she's well conscious enough to be saying things and moving towards Lawrence Talbot and mourn his death. <laughs> right. Uh, I, right. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Oh it's, man, it works though. I think it, I think it works just fine. There's a there's a weird little continuity sort of error where she puts her arm over him as he's he's laying face down. We the the scene changes to someone else for like two seconds and then we look back and he's on his back uh, face up oh yeah <laughs> I, that's right wow. it, it, the positioning was like okay it's reasonable to assume she pulled him over but there's no evidence that that actually happened <laughs> right and it was daniel right. that went up to her and yeah yeah hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and again it's a missed opportunity here because we could have had a rematch frankenstein fighting the wolfman or at least the yeah. monster so, but yeah, as you mentioned, <laughs> Daniel gets tossed out the window. That was, I, I laughed out loud when I, yeah. I, I was just like, oh, <laughs> what just happened? Yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I didn't laugh that hard. I was like, it is a little funny, but by the same token, yeah. I'm like, that's still like, that's like one of the, the most central characters to this story has now just been. <laughs> launched out the window, out and, the window. And, but, and you you don't know if you feel bad for him or if you think he deserved it because he whipped the monster out of right. frustration with Ilanka yet he's also been this this guy has been getting discriminated against the entire film yeah, this yeah. poor guy who can't get a break right <laughs> I just I, I love I would love to have been in the writer's room when they you know, came up with that, like, well, how can he do? Oh, he strangles him. Oh, he always strangles him. Oh, we can't have him squish his head. You know, we can't show any gore. How about he chucks him out the window? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> oh, a plot twist. Nimoy, he doesn't die. Right. <laughs> He's actually alive. What I, <laughs> what I want to know, though, too, now, is that the villagers, how do they know that the monster can't stand fire? I was asking myself the same thing. I'm like, how, I'm like, how do they know that? The, the, yeah. um, I mean, I would I would argue that maybe it's reasonable the Frankenstein legend has kind of gotten around within 15 years. True. Um, yeah. If they didn't say, ah, he doesn't like fire, it would have been fine. Because at the end of the day, putting fire towards a monster and it reeling from you is a very reasonable system to have. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, yeah, of course, you know, uh, 
It, it, we've been saying right along, Chris has been noticing that these movies almost always end in fire, and it kind of ended yeah. in fire here. The only difference here is that it wasn't fire to a building. Yeah. That's, the o- that's literally the only difference. It was the bog grass. It was, it was the bog grass. It was kind of cool, though, that they were like, oh, let's push him towards the, the quicksand. It was a, that yeah. was a smart play. Yeah. We, we have to give the yeah, builders credit for that one, you know. But it felt, but it felt really rushed. Like, it felt very anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it. The Frankenstein monster is nothing without the supporting characters. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like so Godzilla, you know. It's like, what are you going to do? Takes them down yeah. with him. I guess if, you're, if I'm going to go, you're going to go too. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, that could be, you know, I, I was wondering too, does the monster even know the danger of quicksand? He may not even have known. No, I just don't think he figured, knows. Oh, we're just getting out of here, you know. Oh, why is the ground going down? Not, not to mention the fact that the monster has no fear of death. Right. There's, there's no like, there's yeah. no worry for his own life. He's like, ah, I've got, I've got my doctor here. I've got, you know, I'm just gonna <laughs> go over here and we're, I'm gonna save his life and run from the fire because that's the danger. And I'm like, I'm like, this is like, it's like really sad almost that he's like finally yeah. woken up from this, you know, just got in a fight finally woken up now with some lightning in his, in his chest, sees the p- person who just woke him up, get strangled, attack that guy, run away, and then slip down the drain into the quicksand. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's sad. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, as you said, Chris, it is anticlimactic. I'm trying to think of a better way they could have ended it, but, you know, most of these, I mean, sorry, Son of Frankenstein, he didn't die. Right. Uh, uh, first Frankenstein movie, he, we thought he was dead, but then he didn't die. Um, right. And then what was the was it? Uh, Ghost of Frankenstein had the second son. He died in the fire, right? When the house yes. caught fire. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're summing um, up the whole franchise, Pop. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm just trying to think if you know how could they have done something differently with Neiman? I suppose this was their attempt to do something different. Yeah. Well, I will say it is. It is. A creative ending. It's something. It's at least different. And I do like the fact that uh, you know they're going into quicksand, so they're go- so they're sinking into it. It's almost like going back to where the monster started in this movie. Whereas instead of being underground in ice, now he's underground in quicksand. Right. Right. Yeah. So in that way, the story did sort of go full circle, I suppose. And he did go underground in the sulfur pit in the third one. That's true. Yep. So. Um, I wish I could remember how this this how uh, House of Dracula picks up from this, but I guess it's not really that important. So, final thoughts on uh, the House of Frankenstein, Chris? Since this was your first viewing, sure. I thought overall it was a fun movie. I wouldn't say it's a strong movie by any means, but within the continuity of the whole arc of the Frankenstein story and you know and the Wolfman. I, I think it's a fun addition. I think uh, viewers who look at these movies will have fun with it. But that being said, as I said before, this felt like, I wouldn't really call this movie a mess necessarily, but I do feel that there were, that everything was thrown in but the kitchen sink. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and not, not, not everything came together seamlessly, but for what it is, it's a lot of fun. Spence? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. There's a lot of good in this movie, and uh, you know, a lot of not so good when it comes to the structural pacing. Um, I think for anyone like my age, you know, I'm I'm 20, so anybody going into this movie who's you know grew up on uh, you know 
the purge and paranormal activity needs to remember that this is horror from 1945 right this is this is Mm. the the thing that is supposed to be scaring audiences you know that year so for all intents and purposes when you go into it like that there's a lot of scary things that go on you know so i think that it's is a really good movie and you know people need to people my age if they're going to watch it need to remember that detail because i think they'll appreciate it a lot better I mean, it begins right off the bat with murder. They kill Lampini, you know, and that was that was pretty terrifying. I thought, oh my, oh my God, really? This is how we're going to begin the movie? <laughs> yeah, and the camera yeah. work definitely added to that. You know, with with mm-hmm. the, the, Daniel coming towards the um, the camera with his hands outstretched, like yeah, that's, that's right. That's, a, that's yeah. a scary shot, even by today's standards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget who it was we had on the show, and he basically said the same thing that you said, Spence. It was like. Horror movies, people respond to them because they're scary. They're about scary things that are considered scary at the time that they're made. Right. So we look at it now, might not find it quite so scary, but back then, I'm sure people were hiding under their seats watching this movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to think of it this way, too, is that the the filmmakers of the time, they were literally writing the language of what we know as horror, and really the language of filmmaking, like the visual language, the, the whole... Uh, lore of story language, like all of that was literally being invented. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, like I said earlier, I really love this one. I enjoy this movie. I know it's got a lot of problems, Kong-sized plot holes. Um, I wish Dracula got to meet the other monsters. I also was hoping for a Frankenstein and Wolfman rematch. Um, but the cast, I thought, is what makes this movie really fun and enjoyable. And, you know, and for me, too, like with Spence, I think it's it's nostalgic. Um, I just remember mm. watching this when I was a kid. And, you know, it was the first I think it was the probably the first universal um, horror that I bought on VHS when it first came out. And nice. um, I think it, this movie is, you know, still needs to be seen in the order in which we've sort of talked about them because for it to make sense. In terms of, you know, <laughs> as best as you can make sense of some of these stories. But um, I think for someone who doesn't know or anything about this movie, I think once they go into it, they'll find it's just plain fun. You know, you can't, you can't be too nitpicky. Um, especially yeah. one thing I don't think we've actually talked about, but back in like the 30s and 40s and even the 50s, um, they didn't think that people would be watching these years later that people what what is it it's mm. almost 100 years ago or 90 years ago um would would be having a podcast talking about these movies you know oh totally That's a good point yeah it is a good point well and and you know it's interesting too and we talked about this before but by this point in the making of these movies you could argue that these were almost like assembly line movies at this point because like they would produce they would produce these movies at least once every year or every two years i mean they produced these and quick succession, but at the same time, so in that in that respect, they probably didn't realize, oh, people are going to be watching this, you know, fifty to fifty to hundred years from now, or whatever the case is. But it also gave us the idea of franchise, and like you know, we have the Marvel Universe today. We have all these different franchises. I think we could attribute that to to almost to this, I would say, because there's a whole universe here. Oh yeah, the original shared universe, and clearly, based on the research that we've done, they they wanted to do that. Their intention was to include the Invisible sure. Man, the Mad Ghoul. For God's sakes, we didn't even cover that movie, right? Um, <laughs> you know, Karis. That how awesome would that have been if if we could have gotten a a true monster mashup? 
yeah, I yeah. Mean, yeah, I was I was thinking that as we as we were you know slowly wrapping up here is that this this is the thing that you know really excited people in the same way that we get excited about um, Freddy versus Jason or King yes, Kong vs sure. Godzilla like that's this is the thing that we all wanted to see and yeah. House of Frankenstein you know it's just a continuation of that but you know this this franchise is really really good for what it is oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah. So, folks, on that note, we are going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to finish off the Frankenstein series with the classic horror comedy, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On the Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't. Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. Come on, take it all out. No! Bring 
nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello. Petrified, but hilariously. Plus the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. Plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. know this frankenstein castle is a real thing is it oh really yeah i just looked, oh, i wow. looked up the novel i know dracula's castle is real i looked up the novel and read um you know you know the novel frankenstein by mary shelley yeah. and uh she traveled through europe along the river rhine in germany stopped in gernsheim 17 kilometers away from frankenstein castle where two centuries before an alchemist had engaged in experiments oh wow huh. wow I'm curious who that was. It was probably what's his name? Um, oh, I think it begins with an A. I'm gonna say Aldous, not Aldous Huxley. Shit, I can't think of it now. There were some famous alchemists though back in the 1400s. <laughs> of course, John Milton's Paradise Lost also influenced. Oh right. Oh uh, right. yeah, I love that book. Well, yeah, all of those books. <laughs> Okay, Larry Talbot, who seemingly survived being shot by a silver bullet in the last movie, makes an urgent phone call from London to a railway station in Florida. All right, hold on, I need to correct this, because this movie t takes place after House of Frankenstein. I'm sorry, House of Dracula. Am I, am I mm -hmm. wrong, Chris? Yeah, because House of Dracula came out, I think, like a year after House of Frankenstein, so yeah. Okay, yeah. so at yeah. the end of House of Dracula... Larry Talbot was cured. He had, like, surgery on his head, and somehow he was no longer a werewolf. But now he somehow is a werewolf again. And he makes an urgent phone call from London to a railway station in Florida where Chick Young and Wilbur Gray work as bumbling baggage clerks. Talbot tries to warn Wilbur of a shipment due to arrive from McDougal's House of Horrors. However, before he finishes, the moon rises, and Talbot transforms into a werewolf, causing Wilbur to think that the call is a prank. Meanwhile, because Wilbur and Chick almost destroy the boxes trying to unload them, McDougal demands that the crates be personally delivered to his wax museum. Chick and Wilbur deliver the crates to the House of Horrors after hours. They open the first one and find Dracula's coffin. When Chick leaves the room to retrieve the second crate, Wilbur reads the Dracula legend. The coffin suddenly opens and Dracula sneaks out. Wilbur's so frightened he can barely articulate his call for help. When Chick returns, he refuses to believe the story. The boys open the second crate, and Chick goes to greet McDougal. Dracula hypnotizes Wilbur, finds Frankenstein's monster in the second crate, and reanimates him. Both leave, and McDougal finds the crates empty and has Wilbur and Chick arrested. That night, Dr. Sandra Mornay welcomes Dracula and the monster to her island castle, because everyone has one of those off the coast of Florida. Sandra has seduced Wilbur as part of Dracula's plan to give the monster a more obedient brain. 
Meanwhile, Wilbur and Chick are bailed out of jail by Joan Raymond, an undercover insurance investigator who feigns love for Wilbur, hoping to gain information. Wilbur invites Joan to a masquerade ball that evening. Talbot takes the apartment across the hall from Wilbur and Chick and asks them to help him find and destroy Dracula and the monster. Wilbur, Chick, and Joan go to Sandra's castle to pick her up for the ball. Wilbur answers a telephone call from Tabin in a place that's not his own house, who informs them that they are in fact in the house of Dracula. Wilbur reluctantly agrees to search the castle and soon stumbles upon a basement staircase where he has a few close encounters with the monsters. Meanwhile, Joan discovers Dr. Frankenstein's notebook in Sandra's desk, and Sandra finds an insurance investigator ID in Joan's purse. Dracula, under the alias of Dr. Lejos, introduces himself to Joan and the boys. Also working at the castle and attending the ball is the naive Professor Stevens, who questions some of the specialized equipment that has arrived. After Wilbur says that he was in the basement, Sandra feigns a headache and tells the others to attend the ball without her. In private, Sandra admits to Dracula that she feels they're not safe to conduct the experiment. Dracula then turns her into a vampire in order to control her. At the masquerade ball, Talbot accuses Lejos of being Dracula, but no one takes him seriously. Joan soon disappears. Sandra lures Wilbur into the woods and attempts to bite him, but fails. While looking for Joan, Talbot becomes the Wolfman and attacks McDougal. Since Chick's costume is that of a wolf, McDougal accuses Chick, who escapes and witnesses Dracula transforming from a bat to a man. Chick is also hypnotized and rendered helpless, while Dracula and Sandra bring Wilbur's... Wilbur, Stevens, and Joan back to the castle. The next morning, Chick and Talbot meet up in the bayou and set out to rescue Wilbur and Joan. Wilbur is quickly freed, but Dracula uses hypnotism to summon him back. As Sandra prepares to cut into Wilbur's brain, Talbot and Chick burst in. Dracula enters and Chick tries to hit him with a chair, but accidentally instead knocks out Sandra. Talbot tries to free Wilbur, but turns into the Wolfman again. Dracula and the Wolfman engage in combat while Chick manages to free Wilbur just as the Frankenstein monster is upon them. Free of his bonds, Sandra tries to control him, but he tosses her out the window. As Dracula and the Wolfman battle through the house, Chick and Wilbur attempt to evade the monster. Ultimately, Dracula goes out onto the parapet and attempts to turn into a bat and fly away with some help from Woody Woodpecker animator Walter Lance, but Talbot's Wolfman grabs him and they tumble into the sea below. Frankenstein's monster chases Wilbur and Chick down to the pier where they jump into a boat. Joan and Stevens douse the dock with gasoline and set it ablaze. The monster, apparently very much over his fear of fire, walks right into it, seemingly to his death. The film closes with Wilbur and Chick making their escape in a rowboat. Wilbur scolds, scolds Chick for his earlier skepticism, and Chick remarks that they have nothing to fear now. Then they learn that, they're be, that they've been joined by the Invisible Man, voiced by Vincent Price, spoiler alert, who makes a crack about not being in the picture, and they flee the boat in terror. So, first impressions. Chris, you, I thought you before had said you hadn't seen it, but you have seen this before? I have seen this one before, yeah. I saw this on... Uh, TCM years oh. and years ago but honestly it was such a long time ago that I only remembered like little bits and pieces of it but I really I really love this movie I mean it's uh, it's a movie you know something it's a movie that on paper should not have worked because you have two, you have these two great comedy legends with these horror icons you put them together and you're like oh that can't possibly work but my god does it work and it works beautifully yeah yeah Spence uh, once again, I've seen this movie, you know, from childhood, this one way more than house of Frankenstein. Uh, I actually got to show this to my girlfriend, uh, just last night. So that was really cool. And she got way more invested in it than she will admit. And <laughs> she walked away from it, uh, you know, saying, wow, that was a lot better than I expected. I could tell that. So, uh, I love this movie. I think this movie is, you know, very funny. 
for what it is and does a lot of things right. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. This is, to me, this is like the ultimate culmination of all the ones that we've been talking about so far. Because, you know, Spence, I, you haven't been with us, but we talked about all the Dracula series, all the Mummy series, all the Invisible Man movies, and then now we're finishing up all the Frankensteins and the Wolfmans. And um, this is just, this is what, without the comedy, this is what House of Frankenstein should have had in it. At least, you know, we get, mm. uh, you know, knockdown, drag out fight between Fra- uh, Dracula and the Wolfman. And that's yeah. all I was asking for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up watching Abbott and Costello in the movies and on their TV show. And um, so they were well known to me. And I, I do remember seeing this at my grandparents' house. Um, I think I have it later in my notes, but I'll just say it now. There was the scene where um, Wilbur's pretending to be hypnotized at the, near the beginning in the House of Horrors, and the Frankenstein monster looks at him and gets scared. <laughs> and he's like, don't worry, he won't hurt you. And I just remember my, oh, that was great. my yeah. parents and grandparents, and we were almost just cracking up at that. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I had already known who the monsters were and who Evan Costello were going into this movie. So as a kid, it was just awesome and you know i freaking love this movie i think yeah almost every scene is burned in my brain it's because i was having a hard time watching it by myself having a hard time not to recite the dialogue while i was playing <laughs> <laughs> you know spancy you and i often quote this movie back and forth to each other i i can promise you that there are now things i've said to my girlfriend that make sense <laughs> this movie has many of my movie quotes that i say on a consistent basis you know, just just out of the open. Well, remember when we, we took the kids to see uh, um, Charlene's kids to see Jaws? They had never seen it before. And Fran turns around at the end of the movie, looks at me, and he goes, "Now I understand half of what you say." It, yeah, yeah, no, it really, it really does work. And you know, there's small jokes like the Junior, yeah, Junior, like yeah. that. I've said so many times, and she's never got it. <laughs> Oh, man. Or like when you and I would be at the beach when you were a little kid and we'd we'd be digging in the sand and filling the buckets and I kept going, fill that bucket with gas. <laughs> <laughs> that that line was po- was poking through my head the moment the boardwalk kind of showed up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, no. When's it going to happen? Oh, no. <laughs> so this movie has, uh, well, it has technically two directors, but we'll talk about Charles Barton. He's actually the main director of the live-action stuff. He did Bo Jest. He did a movie called The Last Outpost. Um, a Disney one that I loved as a kid called The Shaggy Dog from 1959 about this kid oh, that yeah. gets this magic ring that allows him to turn into a dog. Oh, you've seen that? I love that one. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. That's a great one. Yeah. Um, also, he did a lot of Abbott Costello films. Um, a lot of people who worked with Abbott Costello worked on this movie. Um, he, did the, he directed The Time of Their Lives, Buck Privates Come Home, Africa Screams, uh, Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff, which was made after this movie that we're doing today. Um, he also did a lot of TV show and TV shows, including some Spin and Marty segments for Mickey Mouse Club, The Munsters, Family Affair, Dennis the Menace, just so many. Now, the yeah. other guy that's credited as a co-director, but he's really the one who directed the animation sequences, is the great Walter Lance, of course. Mm-hmm. The famous creator and animator of Woody Woodpecker, Andy Panda, Chili Willie, and a bunch of others. I was looking at his IMDb credits. He produced over 600 cartoon shorts. Yeah. Um, I, 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 yeah. And, well, the other thing, too, um, 
should be noted is that he got his career started working for Disney. He did the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit uh, shorts, and Oswald was um, Disney's um, leading character before Mickey Mouse. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I was trying. I didn't get a chance to dig too far. I wanted to know if there was a connection between him and Disney. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so that was uh, his brief connection. But it's funny, when the movie opened and I saw the animation, my first thought was, I, I actually didn't think it was Walter Lance. At first I thought it was Max Flasher because it had that Max Flasher look. It does. But then, but then I looked at IMDb, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like oh, Walter Lance, very cool. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that's really cool that he uh, started with Disney. And uh, But yeah, of course, that's a whole other story to how Mickey uh, came to be in short. Oswald uh, was taken away from Disney. Um, he didn't have the copyright, so uh, another company took away Oswald, and uh, he was left having to create a brand new character. Oh, it's a great success! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah, and he he not only did the opening credits here. I think his first uh, foray into doing animation for live action was when he did the uh, transformation from bat to man scene in Son of Dracula. Hmm. Um, and the one sad note here is, I mean, Walter Lance lived a long life. He died a month before his 95th birthday in 1994. And in previously in 79, he received an Academy Award for Lifetime Achievement. So at least he was recognized for all the cool stuff he did. Although it's yeah. funny, if you've ever actually watched a lot of the Woody Woodpecker cartoons, many of those stories are ripped off from Looney Tunes Bugs Bunny stories. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I mean that was like the golden age of animation then. Uh, so uh, you know, between them and Hanna Barbera, and then uh, you know Chuck Jones, they were all ripping off each other basically. Yeah. <laughs> Spence, I'm just curious from your point of view, having grown up with this movie as well. What was your take on the animated intro? Did that ever? Um, there's a lot of things in this movie that my tiny brain as a child just did not register. Um, and just so many scenes that I remember, but I remember them not in the context that they existed in. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. There's so many moments. And that was that the intro is one of them where I just remember it existing and not appreciating it for what it was. I was just like, oh, this is cool. And it continued on with the movie. It was like a, a sequence of events. And I didn't really get it. But it, it's a really, really neat intro because it, you know, it introduces all the fun characters with you know mm. the, it's got the monsters and stuff but then it has the the you know nice title sequence uh with the bones yeah. and stuff i thought that was that was really fun um and it does set the stage for the movie you know it's like mm -hmm. really sort of especially with the music the score in this movie is freaking awesome oh yeah it definitely is so this film was uh, has three writers attached to it robert lees who did some of the films that we talked about including the invisible woman uh, he also did Hold That Ghost, Buck Privates Come Home, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, uh, and a bunch of other films and TV shows right up until the 80s. Um, he also you know, worked on sh oh, 60s shows like The Green Hornet and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Then yep. another writer, um, Frederick I. Rinaldo, he pretty much did almost all of the same films as Robert Lee, so they must have been like a writing team. And then John Grant was a gag writer for Abbott and Costello, so he wrote stuff for almost all of their films. Um, so he would come up nice. with the bits, you know, like the um, like the candle moving on the top of the coffin, which I didn't get a chance to really dig too deep. I, I did a little cursory search, but I'm pretty sure that whole gag was used in previously in Hold That Ghost. I could be wrong, huh. and people listening I, at home... I do remember... Um 
hearing about that detail where that at least that candle sequence in that movie is famous in what for one reason or another, either within, you know, Abbott Casella circles or greater than that. But I do remember like knowing the fact that that's a really, really impactful, funny gag that came out of a good harm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking of the these guys, Bud Abbott plays Chuck Young and Lou Costello plays Wilbur Gray. And uh, for those audience listeners, uh, audience listeners, for <laughs> those in the audience <laughs> who are listening don't know, uh, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello were uh, an American comedy duo whose work in radio, film, and television made them the most popular comedy team of the 40s and early 50s. Um, and they, they were the highest paid entertainers in the world during World War II. And their routine, Who's On First, is considered one of the best known comedy routines of all time, which to this day, every time I listen to it, I laugh out loud. Yeah. Um, and what makes that work, the Who's On First, is I think Abbott is actually the funnier one in that because he's delivering the the lines deadpan and yeah. like he understands it he's like oh no he's on third base you know what's on second no he's on first you know all that kind of stuff and it's costello who's losing his mind because he doesn't he doesn't understand what the hell abbott's talking about and so i think <laughs> in that respect abbott's actually funnier in that routine than costello is even though they're both funny yeah, that's kind of how they approach this movie as well. Abbott is definitely the straight one, and Costello is, you know, of course, uh, um, uh, you know, over the top, and uh, to me, steals the show in the movie, although they're both very, very funny. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, their popularity kind of waned in the early 50s due to overexposure and changing tastes in comedy, and uh, their film and TV contracts lapsed. Partnership ended soon afterwards, and you know what? We'll have to do a whole show on them. We'll get an expert in to really talk about them. I know that they had a lot of friction between the two of them, but I don't, I'm not authorized to speak enough, or well-versed, I should say, in their mm. history. Except that nobody should ever see the TV movie that was made about them with Harvey Corman and, uh, and uh, Buddy Hackett. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> mm, I've heard, yeah. <laughs> Um, so what'd you think, Spence, of, uh, Abbott and Costello's performance here? Um, this is really the one of two or three things I've ever actually seen them in. I haven't seen uh, quite a bit of their other stuff. So, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's the number one thing that I've ever seen them do. Uh, but <laughs> I really, you know, thought that they did a good job of actually making it a legitimate horror comedy throughout the right. movie, yeah. you know, like there's there's moments where you know scary stuff is happening and then it'll cut to something else that's going on concur concurrently like when you know um the wolfman is transforming at the beginning of the movie you know that the way they frame the shot is it's got the the wolfman music it's you know scary you know it's talbot's upset about it and he's ripping the room apart and then they cut to costello who's on the other end of the phone it's <laughs> is just not pleased with what's going on <laughs> It's like, please calm your dog down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chris, did you notice in that scene? I I mentioned to you before you watched it to pay close. Attention I know you're to gonna say. Yep. Yeah. I oh I noticed it. I was like, what? I was like, oh, that's a brilliant lighting cue. Wasn't how it? the uh, yeah, how yeah, basically the um for anyone who's listening, the 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 window shades, uh, they basically uh they basically go upward on the wall, indicating that the mood is rising, and it's such a tiny detail that. You may you may see you may not, but in any case, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's like Spence said, it, it's the music is perfect. It's timed with the music, so 
as you're watching literally the moon rising in the background and then he just sort of you see the look on his face and he's holding the phone and he looks over at the window and he obviously sees the full moon they don't have to show it to us to, for us right. to know what's about to happen so yeah that was great and i love the fact that the story it's a serious story and mm. then you throw in Abbott and Costello and i think that's kind of what makes it work is you know you've got these two guys sort of thrust into this situation so they're kind of goofy and bumbling, but everything around them is deadly. I mean, they want to take Lou's brain and put it in Junior's body, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a good moment where um, they explain that very quickly. You know, there's, it, when it cuts to the monster with Dracula um, and Sandra, she's like, oh, I found, you know, somebody who's so easily, he's just a trained dog. You know, the moment he get his brain will get into the monster. And... Um, I, I, I was like, ah, oh, geez. And my girlfriend, Lauren, did not get what she was talking about. And um, <laughs> it wasn't until about 50 minutes into the movie where she's like asking me a couple of questions. I'm like, all right, well, they already have established this. So if you don't get it by now, I feel like I should explain it. Pause the movie for a quick <laughs> second. I, you know, I'm, I'm like, it wasn't something that they're probably going to explain later. They've already established it. And I'm like, I'm like, you know what she wants to do, right? She's like, no. I'm like, well, she's working for Dracula to make the Frankenstein monster subservient to Dracula. So how do you do that? And she's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, she wants to get a brain. I'm like, whose brain do you think she wants? And her face, she was horrified. She, she, she was like, Wilbur, no. And like was actually very invested in the situation at hand. I'm like, now you're getting the the situation. <laughs> nice. That's nice. awesome. That's a perfect example of why this movie works. Because, mm -hmm. because, and I think I have this in my notes later on, they introduce us to Wilbur and, and Chick before the monsters. So we are already invested in their lives and what they're doing. You know, so when the yeah. monsters do show up, then it's like all of a sudden the stakes get higher. But we're right. too late. We're there. <laughs> yeah, and something else about the beginning of the movie is, you know, Lawrence Talbot makes the call. He's not, like, panicky. He makes his call... Yeah, he's a little panicky when he starts, but he makes his call and he's calm and he introduces himself immediately, not just to the characters, but to the audience. So we instantly know, all right, this is Lawrence Talbot. This is what we're working with. There's no like lead up to who he is. Like we already know established this is going to be the Wolfman for the duration of the movie and have have a quick interaction between him and the main characters over the phone. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. There's not a lot of, of scenes of wasted exposition in this movie. No, there's really not. And, you know, and, and if it does happen, it usually happens during a comedy set piece, which I think is the right way to do it. And that's, um, you know, you can attribute that to the writing, but also to the directing, the staging of the scenes, to reveal exposition during a comedy scene. That way the audience is not paying attention to it so directly but it's kind of indirect it's in the background you you hear the information but you're watching a comedy set piece that's brilliant right right so speaking of of cheney jr as uh, lawrence talbot the wolfman um i guess around this time he had been doing some stage work on uh, mice and men which was his first film that he had done which is a by the way if nobody's seen that you've got to see of mice and men it's it's just great um, he was also doing a play called Born Yesterday. He didn't, from what I understand, at least according to Wikipedia, he didn't have a lot of positive things to say about this movie, later proclaiming that he used to enjoy horror films when there was thought and sympathy involved. Then they became comedies. Abbott and Costello ruined the horror films. They made buffoons out of the monsters. That's a, that's a shame. Which I disagree yeah. with that. Yeah. 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 I, I don't think that that really uh, holds up it properly. 
you know, I can see, I see his point, right. but I, I, I think, you know, it, it has, to, he has to be talking figuratively because the monsters in this movie are very serious. They there's are. No, there's no diminishing of their value or power. I mean, the whole sequence of, of Abraka still reading out the, the origin and story of Dracula and Frankenstein and where they come from is kind of a really big moment. And like, they're establishing that these things are real threats if they're real. Right. Right, right. Well, and again, too, I mean, uh, to your point about um, the monsters being serious, the only people that have remotely any comedy in this is Abbott Costello. Anything else outside of that, it's more incidental comedy, like Dracula with his quip about, uh, oh, you know, about how uh, saying, uh, saying to the monster, he can't hurt you, whatever. It's done... It's yeah, done, yeah. In, but it's done in such a straight way that it doesn't. That none of the actors are trying to be funny because the material is already already funny on its own. So that's where I disagree with uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Um, but from what I understand, this movie had kind of a troubled production between Lon Chaney Jr.'s thoughts on it and um, Costello in particular. He did not want to do this movie, from what I understand. It wasn't until Charles Barron came on as director that he agreed to do it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we did have Lugosi finally return to play Dracula for a second time. Only the second time he ever played really? this character. Um, yep, he spoke positively. He has played other vampires in other movies, but he not only Dracula. played. Wasn't he the original Dracula? Yeah, yeah, th- yes. yeah. That was the first. And then he yeah. played it again here. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> um, <laughs> he spoke very positively about the role during production. He was glad the script wasn't unbecoming to Dracula's dignity. And that all I have to do is frighten the boys. A perfectly appropriate activity. My trademark will be unblemished, <laughs> he said. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but this was his last involvement uh, in a film for a major studio mm. like Universal. Everything else he did was like, you know, the Edward right. stuff or... Yeah. Uh, Wait, hold, hold on, hold on. So you're meaning to tell me that the man who, like, in a very serious sense, defined defined the public perception of Dracula on screen only played him twice? Twice. Twice. (laughs) So twice on screen and then um, many times on the stage because he also played Dracula on stage as well. Oh, yeah. Right. And and prior to the first movie he played, that's kind of how they discovered him. Oh, yeah. Okay. But still, I mean, nobody's really remember. Nobody in this day and age can really remember the the you know his performance in that we have his we have the films to work with he is the definition of dracula even if he's you know maybe not the most literarily accurate because i think dracula has a lot more uh facial hair in the right. books and stuff like that but it's still a, he's still the epitome right uh, what yeah yeah <laughs> that's yeah, news I... to me i'm not gonna lie i thought he like <laughs> played dracula in multiple films and john Carradine filled in for like two or three Nope. <laughs> right, nope. Even Cheney Jr. played Dracula in Son of Dracula. Or was he, he was Dracula? Didn't Bela Lugosi play the monster in a couple of them, though? L- yeah, Lugosi played the monster in Frankenstein meets the Wolf. That's right, yep. And he was Igor in, in the previous Okay, so, okay. Yep. so he was involved, but he only played Dracula twice. Correct. Okay. Right. Yeah. He didn't. He was offered after Dracula. He was offered the part of Frankenstein, but he turned it down because there were no speaking parts, and of course, that turned an unknown Boris Karloff into an international superstar. 
I, I don't think that the first Frankenstein would have been as good with Lugosi as the monster. Nah, I, no, Karloff uh, was the right choice for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but at least, you know, he was positive about this movie. And then we've got Glenn Strange returning as the monster. Uh, like we said, we saw him in House of Dracula. and um, I guess he'd only been in a handful of roles since that film, including uh, he did uh, Beauty and the Beast for Monogram Pictures, uh, Eagle Lions, Frontier Fighters, and for Universal he did two movies, Brute Force and another Abbott and Costello film called The Wistful Willow of Wagon Gap. Um, he later recalled on the set, of this movie that we're talking about was one of the most enjoyable pictures I ever worked on. Nice. So that's nice to hear, yeah. Yeah. He, he's great here as the monster. I think if anyone could replace Karloff at Glenn Strange, yeah. did a good job of it. Um, then, of course, Lenore Albert plays Sandra Mornay. She was born in Austria and Hungary, which is now Slovenia. Um, she only, I spelled only wrong, she only did 20 films, including Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer. And then in the 50s, she joined her husband, who was in the garment business in New York. And the business succeeded, but the marriage did not. With the exception of a couple of minor European films, her acting career was uh, effectively over. So she ended up devoting much of her remaining life to charitable causes and did a lot of work for the United Nations and things like the Museum of Natural History in New York wow. and stuff. Nice. So, Yeah. And then Jane Randolph played Joan Raymond, which is kind of weird. <laughs> what is that? It's like an alliterative where yeah. it's J.R. and J.R. Um, she starred in Cat People and Curse of the Cat People, which I have. Those are, those are great movies. We have to cover those. Those weren't for, I don't think they were for Universal. I'm not sure. They might have been RKO. But anyway, she ended up, she only did a handful of movies and she married this rich guy and lived out the rest of her life as a socialite in Spain. <laughs> What more can um, we ask? Frank for? Ferguson, <laughs> right? <I> mean, <laughs> you just need a sugar mama, and you're good. You know, Frank Ferguson played McDougal. Uh, he was in well over 300 films and TV shows, and a major character actor. He's one of those guys, like another one where I recognize his voice, where he'll show up in something, and I, I'll, I'll like I might not be looking at the screen, and I'll look up, and I'll go McDougal. <laughs> he does have a very, uh, very uh, distinct voice in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which works, I think, for the character that McDougal is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get me those uh, things right now. Uh, Charles Bradstreet played Dr. Stevens. He was only in like 10 things. I think he didn't even want to be an actor, <laughs> if I read that correctly. Um, but of course, spoiler alert, we had Vincent Price as the voice of the Invisible Man, which he's completely uncredited for here. But that's another one that you just hear his voice and you know exactly mm -hmm. who it is. Um, which was a nice, that was a nice surprise. I remember as a kid going, I think I knew who he was at the time and was shocked. And like my whole family just dying laughing because it was Vincent Price. Yeah. <laughs> now, one other guy I wanted to mention, um, do you remember the guy towards in the party towards the end where um, uh, I think Talbot asked him if he'd seen Robert <laughs> Gray and he goes, seen him? I don't even know him. Um, that guy is Bobby Barber, who was employed for the film as a court jester. So his job was to keep the energy level up of the actors through a series of practical jokes and deliberately blown <laughs> takes. So often, like when Lou Costello would expect Lon Chaney Jr. to come through the door, Barber would run through wearing a hat and cape immediately run back <laughs> out. Uh, Lugosi enjoyed Barber's antics as long as he was not the victim. But And I, I've heard the story a long time ago. There was one particular time where 
they're filming the scene in which, you know, Dracula, he's solemn and sinister and he's descending the staircase. And Barbara's sneakily following behind him, imitating his every move. And the cast and the crew, they just burst into laughter. Lugosi turned around and glared at him and yelled in his thick Hungarian accent, We should not be playing while we are working. <laughs> and then he stormed <laughs> off the set. That's funny. So I wonder if that makes me think, and uh, you know, we could do an even deeper dive into this, but I know there was tension between Abbott and Costello, and like you said, Lou didn't want to do this movie, so there was a lot of tension. Um, I wonder if that's why they hired Bobby Barber to just sort of lighten yeah. the mood every yeah. so often. <laughs> that that sequence, um, I, to my friends and my girlfriend, make a lot of jokes where any any sentence or word that ends in ER, like, oh, killer, I say, of course, killer, I barely know her. So, so that, that joke has gone on so long that some of my friends, I'll say something completely normal and they'll just go, I barely know her as to make fun of me. And, and so when that happened, the look on her face was pure malice. She was, she was ready to strangle me right then and there. That's hilarious. Well, it's like, I can't like anytime anyone uses the word tissue, I, I have to say, tissue. I don't even know you. Yeah, it, it's it's just gotten so deep that the moment I forgot that line existed. So when I I saw that, I just had to look away. I had to look away for a quick second so I didn't get my eyes gouged out. Oh my god. So yeah, so like you said, Chris Costello did not like the script, but I did also read something that kind of conflicted with the with this, saying that they originally wanted to do it as a. And, you know, Abbott and Costello wanted to do it as a Broadway show, but they were too busy with film and radio work. And since Hold That Ghost was a huge hit, they decided to do it as a movie. So I don't know if they were against teaming up with the monsters or just the particular script that was right. written. Because isn't there one point where Costello basically screams and says, my five-year-old daughter can write a better script? I heard script about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I wonder if it really is was just the... Either this, the original script or what we have at this point that he just was not a huge fan of. Yeah. It's just funny. And apparently, yeah, but at Costello, we're often, they made it difficult for the director because they sometimes wouldn't show up or just, they'd be on the set, but they'd be playing cards <laughs> and they wouldn't actually be doing it. <laughs> 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 oh They're just like, God. but it was he. Yeah, it's like, it's like, they're pretty much just like, eh, it's work. So like whatever. Right. <laughs> I'm here, aren't I? What more can you ask for? Oh, I gotta right. get on stage in right. front of the camera too. Jeez. I gotta do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a huge hit for Universal. Mm -hmm. It was the, one of the biggest films of the year. Um, they did a lot of follow-up films where they met other uh, horror film actors and monsters and stuff like. They've met the Mummy, the Invisible Man. There's one called The Killer Boris Karloff, which kind of gives away the ending in the title. But <laughs> uh, I um, did read that um, House of Frankenstein was kind of a bomb at the box office. So that kind of led to a bunch of people being let go. And this movie kind of saved a, saved a couple of things for Universal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I heard so. that, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's cool, in 2001, the United States Library of Congress deemed this film culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and placed it in the National Film Registry. Yeah, I, 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 I believe the American Film Institute also ranked it as like one of the top 100 funniest movies. Yeah. Yes, yep. Which mm. is awesome. I find an interesting fact here. On uh, November 28th of 45, Universal joined with British entrepreneur J. Arthur Rank, 
who bought one-fourth interest in the studio. And in 46, Universal reported a profit of only $4.6 million. So they responded by dropping many actors. This yeah. is what you were saying, Spence. Many actors from their contract roster, including Cheney. Um, on July 31st of 46, an official merger began. The company was now called Universal International. And it only had Deanna Durbin, Maria Montez, Bud Abbott, and Luke Costello, and a few other actors remaining on their payroll. Um, since the February 1941 release of Buck Private, starring Abbott and Costello, the duo were among the most powerful stars at Universal. By 1945, they nearly split up as they were fighting each other and suffered from their own personal issues. Abbott suffered from severe epilepsy. I forgot mm. about that. Um, and Costello had nearly died of rheumatic heart disease in 1943. Oh, good Lord. Wow. Yeah. They had a lot of issues. Um, in their first year of operation, the studio, Universal International, nearly went bankrupt. And in 1948, William Getz, who was in charge of production since Universal merged with International Pictures, um, in the same year, Abbott and Costello's popularity was also waning, uh, with the team up not having a top ten. I'm sorry, with the team not having a top ten box office hit since 1944. So um, I guess Charles Barton was among the top comedy film directors at the time. He didn't want anything to do with Abbott and Costello after MGM basically dropped their option for more films from the team, and Camel Cigarettes dropped their radio show. Oh wow! Which back then, cigarette advertisers were right. huge paying right. sponsors. Um, so Robert Arthur, who was a former writer and associate producer of MGM musicals, along with veteran Abbott and Costello writers Frederick Ronaldo and Robert Lees that we talked about earlier, he developed the script that involved the, mo the Frankenstein monster, Count Dracula, and the Wolfman. Now, this is really cool. The original script also included Karis, the mummy, Dracula's son, Alucard, and the Invisible Man. And the script involved the monster becoming Dracula's slave and began seeking the brain of a simpleton to be placed in the monster's body, eventually setting on, settling on Luke Costello. Karis and Alucard were dropped from the script, and the Invisible Man was only included as a small gag at the end. That would have been really cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the, I, I mentioned earlier the original title of this was The Brain of Frankenstein. That hmm. actually would have been a title that made a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because well, that's one of the notes I had down. Because um, it says Abbott Costello be Frankenstein. There's a few things wrong with that title. <laughs> so, a, a, oh, yeah. um, Abbott Costello don't play themselves. They play Wilbur and and um, uh, Chick. Chick. So, so it's not technically them. They're playing characters. And also Frankenstein again, as we talked about before, is not the monster, but the scientist. So, and they meet the monster. So, right. There's some stuff. There's some stuff wrong with that, <laughs> right? And they don't just meet him; they meet Dracula. Right, and exactly. Too. Yeah. I mean, I think you could argue that at the time, if you said Frankenstein, you thought Universal. True. So true. that's know. true. And by putting their names on the top, it's like you know a huge draw because they were the top comedy. Yeah, it's like time. you wouldn't say, "Oh, uh, uh, what was it? Key and Peel meet Friday the Thirteenth." <laughs> You'd say Key and Peel meet Jason. Right. Right, Something right, like right. That. <laughs> yeah, true. Good point. Yeah. So I, I read some conflicting things too. I don't know if you guys did any research on the makeup, but um, they had a new, the film had a new makeup department opposed to the old one, which was headed by Jack Pierce. Now I understand that, I, I read that it was Jack Pierce who developed this more simpler rubber headpiece for Glenn Strange to wear. But I've also read that uh, a couple people, Emil Lavinia, um, who did Cheney's makeup, while Jack Kevin worked on Glenn Strange, 
and both Cheney and Strange required only one hour of makeup each in the chair in the morning before each set, which much of Strange's makeup now being this rubber mask I talked about, um, which saved them, you know, uh, over 100 hours of production time on the film. Um, but when he would remove the, the headpiece at the end of the day, it would like a gallon of sweat oh, would geez. pour out. <laughs> The, did you hear anything about that? Was Jack Pierce definitely not involved in this movie? Mm, I didn't look into that, actually, but now I'm curious to know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it sounds like it's possible that Jack Pierce helped develop it, but he didn't implement it in the movie, per se. Yeah. It's, it's right. possible that he was part of the creation process of that uh, that piece of costume to help with Frankenstein. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it might have been at the point where he, there was so much going on that he couldn't necessarily do it himself, and he's already trained, maybe trained people how to do it, his methods. Like, he had developed that Wolfman makeup and used that in quite a few movies yeah. as well. So, But there was an accident on set uh, where the scene where Glenn Strange was supposed to throw Lenore Albert through the window, there was an invisible wire that would be attached to her to help him lift her up, and when she he threw her, she swung back into camera range. So he tried to catch her, but he ended up falling and breaking his foot in oh, the process. <laughs> so um, as his injury was being treated, Cheney took to applying took to applying the makeup and portrayed the monster throwing Albert through the window. Now, did you notice that was the other thing, Chris? Did you notice that that Cheney playing the monster? Yeah, I was looking at that scene over and over, and uh, no, I did not actually. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's that's pretty good then no. on their part that it seemed that seamless. I mean, I only know it because I've been told, and now I can yeah, see his face. Exactly. It yeah, exactly. No, yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice. Quick it. moment though, like he he only plays the monster for ten seconds, and half half of those seconds he's facing away from the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Frank Skinner did the score for this movie. He had also done Son of Frankenstein and The Wolfman, and I just love the score in this movie. Yes, oh, yeah. something I have to say is this movie and House of Frankenstein did this really neat thing with The Wolfman where every time he was doing things, it was his theme in the background from the original movie. Every time he yeah, was he was yeah. on screen, he's transforming, he's you know attacking somebody or something like that. It was It was the Wolfman theme, and then for the rest of the movie, they had their own, you know, Maybe I'm sure they were using other franchises. I'm not sure if that was a necessarily intentional detail or if the music just lined up for both movies and those scenes, but that was a really cool moment for me because I'm like, wow, I remember this from the original Wolfman movie, which is probably one of my favorite Universal Monster movies, if, yeah. if it's not this one. Yeah. Hmm. This, this uh, is just so good. And I love when they do stuff like that. A lot of other film composers have done that over the years. Like, of course, John Williams. We'll have Luke Skywalker's theme play whenever Luke was doing something, yeah. or Princess Leia. Um, was another one that just popped in my head, and now it's gone. Um, but yeah, I, I just love when movies do that. And this again, this probably originated because at the time, this was one of the few movie studios making multiple sequels of their characters. I mean, maybe there were westerns or stuff that we haven't really watched or anything. Like, I know we talked about the one guy was in um, a series of Ellery Queen movies and mm. stuff like that. But this is the most recognizable to me, you know, like whenever that theme, the Wolfman theme would kick in. Cuz then when you hear it in another film, it's odd because you're like, "Wait a minute, that's the Wolfman." Theme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something um I really like about the Universal movies in general and this one it stands out is Today we have Freddy versus Jason and Godzilla versus Kong. Back then it was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. 
there's no guarantee right. that they're enemies. There's, there's no guarantee on the plot. There's no guarantee that this is going to be a smackdown of the century in any capacity. It's just the two franchises merge for a quick second. Yeah. Which I, I really like. <laughs> I like that concept. Well, and it's funny because when we covered that in last episode, we kind of did mention how like the promotional material was both monsters like strangling each other. But when you actually boil it down, Frankenstein is the woman... And yes, she meets Talbot. She meets the Wolfman. So <laughs> you could argue that that's the ti- That's where the title comes from. <laughs> it's just they they fake you out with all the promotional yeah. material. Like, oh, it's going to be the battle of the yeah. century, you know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. What's cool is though, Karloff, Boris Karloff was involved in this film uh, to a minor degree. He, the basically Universal paid him to pose outside of the uh, Lowe's Criterion Theater in New York to promote the movie. And he agreed, <laughs> stating, as long as I don't have to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But this was a cool one I read online where someone said that this is the, it's the, you've got to believe me routine you've seen in so many horror movies. And to be fair, this film is early enough in film history for it not to have been as cliche as it would seem now. And yet it feels fresh because the dialogue, the staging, the characterization are so clever and the comedic timing is spot on. Oh, yeah. So I, I agree with that. But one reviewer did write, I, I wonder, I still wonder if someone who wrote, if someone wrote, oh, chick, into the script so many times, knowing it sounds similar to another phrase that maybe screamed in fright. I never thought of that before. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. That's true, though. <laughs> uh, Spence, you ever think of that? No, I actually never thought of that one when I was listening to the movie. I... I I don't know. I like that it establishes their relationship very well. Where Chick's kind of a kind of a dick to him the entire movie, <laughs> but but he's also very grounding. He's like you know no Wilbur, you're probably imagining things. He doesn't like say oh you're crazy. You know you always do this. He's just like no. I think this is like I think I don't think you're correct here. Well, except in this when he situation. says he refers to Talbot and says this guy's screwier than you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is a good point where they had no problem uh, interacting with the rest of the world in their special little way. Yeah. <laughs> These two characters. They had no problem dealing. Like, like McDougal shows up and, of course, you know, Chick and Wilbur run instantly. Right. <laughs> the two of them at the same time, you know. I love that, too. Like, like Wilbur's grabbing on the back of his belt and he's not letting go. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like um, McDougal uh, throws, throws wood. Now we've got you for assault and battery. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's like, oh, you need a witness. I'm a witness. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't see anything. <laughs> but you know, Ch- uh, Wilbur gives it back to him, even though Chick's mean to him and slaps him every so often. Um, Ch- Wilbur gives it back to him, like when he he won't share the date with him, and he's like, um, you know, no. Let's no. say a third girl That's came right. along. We'll call her Mary, and he's like, all right. Well, why don't you take Mary to the thing? <laughs> <laughs> Or was it Sandra? Sandra fakes the headache and decides she's not going to go. And Wilbur makes some kind of crack, like, "Oh, chicks, too bad your date left." You know. <laughs> <laughs> the moment, the moment that any of the girls question Wilbur, oh, she's chick's date. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's just and it's just funny, you know. This film's the serious and. Like we said, this plot line is serious, but it's funny because it's happening to Chicken Wilbur. Um, you know, their reactions, the goings-on, 
the everything going on with the monster as hilarious it is it's like it doesn't it blurs the line between horror and comedy yeah i think and it's great big time how you guys have described it has made me think that it's a good point is that it's not a funny movie it's a horror movie with two hilarious main characters yeah, yeah. it's yep. not trying to be funny these characters and their dialogue gets really funny because there's so many moments where one of them is grabbed by the collar like you know um even lawrence talbot is like you you believe me i thought you would know that i spoke the truth like he's so frustrated with these guys <laughs> and they're still cracking jokes yeah <laughs> no more to you <laughs> that's a good something that's probably me and my girlfriend are going to quote forever is a uh, is that serious who murder you that's serious <laughs> yeah <laughs> i guess remember the scene where um <laughs> broom closet where um costello ends up in the secret room and he sits on frankenstein's lap mistakenly or the monster's lap i should say and I guess they had to keep retaking that shot because he kept improvising and, and Glenn Strange would start cracking up during the take. <laughs> <laughs> There's one in-joke that none of us would get today, but I guess um, when Sandra's trying to seduce Wilbur, she goes, he is so round, so firm, and Wilbur goes, so fully packed. And I guess that's making fun of the slogan for Lucky Strike Cigarettes, which was a oh, wow. line wow. of advertising that was just everywhere back then. Huh. <laughs> I was thinking about that. There's also like the um the the joke at the beginning, it's like, I'm a union man, I only work sixteen hours a day. Yeah. A union man only works yeah. eight hours a day. I belong <laughs> to two unions. <laughs> that joke would not go over as funny now as it did back then. Right. Right. I mean, even in the 70s, it was still funny. But, you know, beyond that, unions kind of aren't, aren't in the pop culture that much anymore. Um, now, here's one, Spence, you and I talked about. Actually, hold on. I had a question for you guys first. Uh, okay, I had a question for both of you guys. Um, it's not only for you guys, but for the listeners at home. Uh, does the addition of all these wacky hijinks disqualify Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein from the universal horror continuity, meaning, is it not considered canon because it's got comedy mm. in it? That's a good question. Um, my answer, I mean, my answer to that would be yes and no. I say no because it does follow continuity of the previous movies, but at the same time, I also see this as being like an alternate universe. Uh, if, if these characters all existed at the same time, in the same place with Abner Costello. So I think in some ways it doesn't disqualify it, but in other ways it kind of does. That's kind of a in-the-middle answer, but yeah. Hmm. Spence? Um, I would say it absolutely is uh, not disqualified. It is definitely part of the part of the whole set of movies. Um, and something funny to think about is the setting of this movie. I don't know if this is the first time, but this is the first time that I can think of where it's not set in Europe. Yeah, it's oh, set yeah. in America. That's a, it's kind of something to think about. Is that these are you know two Americans? There's even a point in House of Frankenstein is like, oh, you know that American girl, she'll talk your ear off. Uh, so you know there's there's a point where it's all European up until really this movie. So I think that kind of points out to part of the difference is that they're now in this you know I would I would call it a new place. So I think that this is like for me the end of the of the run from you know the first. Frankenstein and Dracula up until 
Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is the, mm. is, is the, the timeline we have here. Yeah, yeah. For me, yeah. I, I think this it's a nice wrap-up to the whole thing. It's, it's entertaining, exciting, and hilarious all at the same time. I mean, heck, you know, Chris, you and I didn't necessarily agree on The Invisible Woman, which I actually didn't like when I first watched it, but that was a comedy. Right. That was a straight-up comedy. That's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. and it's still, you know, part of the canon, I would imagine. Uh, but that's I, a debate. Well, yeah, I mean, in some respect, that movie was, I mean, it's canon by name, but I'm not necessarily sure because none of the characters were the same as the previous movies from that one. That's yeah. true. That could also be an alternate reality thing. Um, and it's funny, though, there is a huge debate still going on to this day about whether this movie is canon or not. And I don't think we want to get too wrapped <laughs> up into that. But I think right. that's up to Universal, not up to the fans, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, one thing, Spence, when you and I first watched this a long time ago, first couple times watching it, um, they referred to the bags as grips. And I finally looked into it. I guess in the 1800s, when you traveled by train or you went on a long trip, which mainly would be trains, um, your personal bag that you carried with you was called a grip. I guess because you gripped it, you know, by the handle. But then in the 30s and 40s, it became a slang term for a tool bag or a grip that a technician would use to carry their tools to work. Hmm. So hmm. I just thought that was interesting. It's just one of those like things that we said in the culture that just little by little eventually went away. I guess. Yeah, there is a moment um, at the beginning where uh, when Wilbur has to get the 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 female customer's bag, um, you know, oh, go get the lady's grip, and then he kind of whistles back to her, "Lady, here's your bag," and continues on. And then they refer to it as grips a couple more times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was an interchangeable term right. that wasn't unreasonable to figure out in the context. Yeah, if you look it up, yeah. you'll see it. Like it'll be like suitcase, bag, grip. You know, all these different words that mean the same thing, basically. Um, which is funny because that's where they start off: is that they're these baggage clerks, these bumbling baggage clerks. Chris, you had some thoughts about the that opening scene, right? Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I mean that that lighting cue was just brilliant, um, and I like how. Lou on the phone is like saying, oh, uh, is telling him to uh, stop his dog or whatever. I mean, that stuff is great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so all that is great. But then the following scene with the whole warehouse thing, the candle thing, that whole scene is a masterclass of comedy because, I mean, it follows the rule of three in comedy, which, you know, somebody happens three times and whatever. And then the big reveal Uh, and that whole sequence is just fantastic through and through. Right, right. And uh, it's funny. And, I mean, even, like, the whole – prior to the Harvest of Horror scene where Costello's on top of the crate and it's moving like it's going to fall yeah. over. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God. It, it, it was it, – but here's the thing that really threw me off. It wasn't like, oh, no, Wilbur, what are you still doing up there? Chick was like, Wilbur, you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time he's, he's like, he's like, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Standing on it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> now there's one thing I would have liked a little exposition on and that was when um, Dracula makes reference to Sandra's curious operations that she did in Europe and now she's on the lam from the police there so I would, I would love like a, um, a solo movie with her character you know mm. yeah yeah. I would, I would put that in the category of I think that's good world building uh, they did that in House of Frankenstein too because uh, Dr. Niemann's whole thing is like he put a human brain into a dog. And there's another reference later in the movie of the horrors of, you know, when somebody did that 15 years ago and that's what put him in jail. So I think that's just like adds to the characters that we see 
knowing that there's more to them. You know, it's the it's the Star Wars. You know, no more adventures in the first movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that that kind of deal. Where there's like these these characters have histories more than just being used for their the plot that we have. Right. 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 Yeah. That's awesome. You know, and it makes me wonder too, though. Like, what when when the two women are snooping on each other. And Joan, you know, what's her name? Sandra finds the card. Oh, she's an insurance investigator. All right, so we're under scrutiny. Joan finds Frankenstein's journal. (laughs) What must she have thought? (laughs) Not to mention, it's not just like, you know, the journal of a famous scientist. It's it's a book titled The Secrets of Life and Death by (laughs) Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) It's very specific, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, there's so many good lines in this, you know, like, I saw what I saw when I saw it. Yeah. And one great one that I actually caught this time around, I'm sure I've noticed it in the past, but when Dr. Lejos, you know, Dracula first meets Wilbur, uh, well, they first officially meet in the castle, and he goes, I've heard so much about you, I feel like we've already met, which is a great touch, because they did meet earlier when he hypnotized him in the House of Horrors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and there's one that comes much later into the movie, but I there was one point I was looking down at my phone for, real quickly, and then I just heard this exchange. I started laughing my ass off. It was, uh, I think, uh, I think uh, um, Abbott says, "I'll bite." Costello goes, "You gotta stand in line first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. <laughs> bring a lot of bandages with you. Yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's like a second joke though, because they already had the whole thing with him and Sandra, who you know is now a vampire and stuff. Yeah. So it's like. It's like, I'll bite. Oh, no, I will. And then she gets interrupted. So that's just kind of, you know, a sequel to the joke. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't catch that until later. But, yeah, I just started laughing because like, I looked up from my phone I just, and I, like, kind of rewind it. I was like, I was like wait a minute, did I hear that right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Did you notice the blooper, too, where um, Dracula is hypnotizing Sandra and we see his reflection in the mirror? Yeah. Mm. Like, oh, man. And they were framing it in such a way that you couldn't tell if his reflection was in there or not. And then the camera angle slightly changed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and speaking of camera angles, too, uh, there's a point where um, the uh, Wolfman, uh, sorry, the, um, when uh, Larry Talbot is uh, in the bathroom, he's transforming into the Wolfman, and uh, <laughs> um, Lou comes down the hall, and, you know, they, um, left side of frame, there's the Wolfman, right side of frame, there's Lou coming down the hall. I just love that shot. It was, that was nicely framed yeah. and photographed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the shots in this were really good. You know, one thing yeah. about that scene, too, I... Uh, I guess I had watched this movie uh, probably recently, like in the last five or six months, and I put a question out there about how... I don't understand how they could lock Talbot into his room. Don't the keys get you in and out? Like, how would you do that? But I guess back then they did have those kind of rooms where you could could lock them from the outside, and if the person inside didn't have a key, they couldn't get out. Yeah. Uh, Not to mention, when has the Wolfman ever used a doorknob? Right. right. So I think regardless of whether you can lock it from the inside or out, he's he's not gonna have a real good chance to open the door. Period. That's a good point. Even even if it is a lock from the inside, <laughs> it's now been locked, so it, it, he's not gonna get out. I know. I'm surprised he didn't wasn't able to just smash through the door, but I guess there'd be no movie if he did. 
Yeah, and you know, there's any any number of reasons you could do that. I think it's it's really funny when they come in, they come into yeah. Velvet's room the next morning, and he's <laughs> face down on the bed, and the room is trash, and and they they think he had a party. They yeah. think he, you know, it's, <laughs> they think he went on a full bender, and 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 he's like, last night I became a wolf. You and twenty million other guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's, it's it's such an interesting take on somebody who experiences the Wolfman. You know, it's it's like you know, oh, you're crazy, or you know, oh, I, I totally believe you. This is like, yeah, I get it. Right, <laughs> it's right. Not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, there's one line that Talbot has when he meets Dracula, and he goes, "We meet again, Count Dracula." But when did they ever meet before? Was um, it Son of Dracula? No, House of Dracula, maybe. It must have been House of Dracula, right? Chris? Uh, <laughs> was it House of Dracula? Been... Now I'm wondering, remember. maybe it was. Cause... It, realistically speaking, has to be. Dracula yeah. didn't meet any of the other monsters in House of Frankenstein. That's true. That's true. Well, yeah. I remember Carradine coming in and asking the scientists for help. He wanted something like a blood transfusion or something. And then Talbot goes to him for help for his werewolfism. So I just don't recall if the two crossed, pa- crossed paths at all. Yeah. I know they definitely did in House of Dracula, like towards the end of the movie, but uh, I think they did. I'm pretty sure. It's been a while, but... Yeah, I mean, and yeah. even if it was in Justin Wolf form, it, you know, it's kind of in the lore that he is experiencing most of the night of being the the Wolfman. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, he feels like he's met Count Dracula, and Dracula's who are you? I fought a I fought a dog. What are you right. talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know there's another line too, Spence, that you used as a kid. I would go, "Do you understand women?" And he go, "I don't even try. I'm gonna get me a drink." <laughs> I yeah, that I have a sm- quick quick story on that one. Is uh, my friend asked me for advice on talking to girls. Mind you, we're in our twenties, and um, he, he's like, you know, like, what do you do? And I go, get this. I'm just normal, and I'm very direct with them. He deadass says to me, Nah, that can't be it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I, that's, that's, that was the vibe that I got, is I don't even try. I'm going to get me a drink. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. You know, you should just learn how to hypnotize women, you know? There you go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that'll really do it. Which is interesting, because Sandra, when she first becomes a vampire, she basically fails her hypnotized role on Wilbur, even though she's got the little bats in her eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, I don't know, I, I always thought that that was what planted the seed for Dracula to be able to call Wilbur back. Yeah. Is yeah. that, that's Wilbur, oh, also Wilbur got um, hypnotized before that, so not necessarily, but. Right, I was going to say Dracula had already put the whammy on him a few there's times. A, there's a, something to think about. How terrifying is it? To, to watch this movie and have been laughing your ass off the whole time, and then there's this one investigator who's going undercover as, you know, this, you know, fun girl who's, who really likes Wilbur, and then she goes to dance with Count Dracula. Count friggin' Dracula. We don't see her again for, like, you know, another ten minutes, and they're like, holy shit, she's been kidnapped. Right, right. <laughs> That's actually really scary. Yeah. Oh, and you know what's also scary, too, is to know that someone could have that kind of hypnotic power over you. 
that you could at any moment just be summoned away and not know what the hell you're doing. Yeah, that's yeah. That's a... um, and there's one scene, this is a line, Spence, you and I talked about this a couple of years ago. I, I didn't notice it until probably, I don't know, three, four, five years ago when I watched it again. I've watched this movie many times <laughs> over the decades. Um, but as a line I never noticed before, towards the end when um, Talbot's on full Wolfman mode and they're out in the jungle and he's going after Wilbur, but of course he keeps getting caught in the bushes and stuff and having a hard time of it. And finally he's about to, to jump him. And Wilbur th- this whole time thinks it's uh, Chick uh, with his wolf mask on. And he goes, but I'm your friend. And then he just takes off because he knows he's going to get sliced to ribbons. And that one moment I thought was so touching. And I never noticed it before because it's very quiet. You know, you almost don't even notice it. Yeah. I, I did catch it this time around, and I'm like, that is scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's touching. It's like he's like trying to appeal to him as his friend, you know? Yeah, he totally yeah. thinks he's somebody else. I mean, there's a whole point where he's um, previously... The Wolfman's like kind of stuck in the bushes trying to get at Wilbur, and he's like, "Didn't Mister Talbot not to not ask you not to wear that mask? And now you're wearing it!" And right. pun- punches him <laughs> yeah. in the face, and just like that is the relationship they have. And there's this point where Wilbur knows that it's it's either not Chick or Chick's gone off the deep end. Right, right. I love that. It's 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 scary, but it's also like a good point to how they know each other. And so the Wolfman bites McDougal. Now, do you think McDougal's going to become a werewolf? I wonder. Mm. That's a that's a good point. That's a good point. I don't. Oh, I never thought of that. Wow. <laughs> that's <laughs> just hitting me. Wow. Like he actually survived the attack. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whoever survives I mean, becomes a wolf himself. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I also had a an interesting thought of does um. Does a person become in 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 the context of Universal because they're the ones with the original kind of lore? Is does does the curse pass on to somebody who survives, but the original werewolf is still alive? That's a good question. Yeah, I, in the Universal films, they've never really tackled that. Yeah, yeah, I wonder if it's not contagious if it's you get you you get bitten and attacked, but then that werewolf is killed in some way, shape, or form. Right. And that's like, what that like. What he does to Bela in the first movie is that's why he becomes the vampire because the curse has to go to somebody uh, become the werewolf. He kills Bela after being attacked. So the combination of those two, for whatever reason, is what turns him into the werewolf. Right, right. That's right. how Which, I think of it. That's the premise of the old the werewolf TV series from the 90s with uh, Chuck Connors and John J. York is that Chuck Connors is a uh, werewolf and bites John J. York's character and so the whole show is sort of like the Incredible Hulk meets the Fugitive, where he's on the run, because you know every time it's like important to the story, he turns into a wolf and saves the day. But he's also trying to kill Chuck Connors' character to remove the curse, so he won't be a werewolf anymore. Mm. Mm. I, I yeah. think that there was a lot of the um, the inspiration from Dracula, where it was if we kill the original vampire, this one will cease to be. Or, right. you know, maybe an intention of of flipping that on its head where you have to kill the original to actually become this thing. Did we you know, see that, Chris, in something? Was it was it Dracula's daughter? Were they talked about it at mm. least? I, you know, I can't remember, but um, that sounds about right, actually, because I feel like that movie did tackle that to some extent. Right, like, because she was going to bite the guy's yeah. girlfriend. Right. Well, she did, and then he killed her, 
at the end and then lit the coffin on fire or something, and then the girlfriend was normal. Right. I think. Chris, uh, Spence, you've got to see uh, Dracula's Daughter. That's a re- it's this direct yeah, it's sequel a to Dracula. It's a really good movie. It's yeah. very good, yeah. Yeah, surprisingly right. really good. Yeah, didn't expect it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, on my list of things to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Junior. Junior. Uh, I love that moment where uh, he's he, Costello is trapped and he's go, he goes, Sandra, Junior. Sandra, Junior. Yeah. <laughs> That, yeah. that, whole, that whole finale is great. The whole chase, and you know, there's a moment where he pulls the tablecloth. He looks at he looks at the table like surprise. Everything stayed. Yeah, he, and then he looks at the he, audience. He breaks yeah, the fourth wall. He looks yeah. at the camera. That was like the second time in the movie he did it. Yeah. He, he looks at the camera, and then he like does this little gesture of a look at this. <laughs> well, you know, but but you know, I thought of I thought of somebody too as I watched that. I couldn't help but think of this has to be where. Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd got the got the inspiration for Ghostbusters. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, well, not just the movie, but also that one moment where Bill Murray pulls the tablecloth. He's like, "Oh, the flowers are still standing." I'm yes. like, "I'm like, I, I thought I thought of Ghostbusters immediately." I'm like, "I'm like, hmm, that had to have come from this." <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I and I wonder if that was truly scripted, at the very least, for him to look at the at the camera. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that's just an amazing scene. You know, and it was cool. Like what what I really get into too is like during that whole sequence where, um, just before that, you know, where um, uh, Talbot and Chick team up. I I love that whole thing where they they team up. They you know Chick realizes that all the shit's real. He's seen it with his own eyes. He saw what he saw when he saw it, and then they go back in to rescue everybody. And you know, of course, it's a full moon, so Talbot turns into the Wolfman. But I just love that whole. Of two characters that, you know, like, Chick uh, didn't like Talbot. He thought he was a nutball, and now he's like, yeah, they're, they're team Wolfman, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I think it, the line I remember is, you were on the level about that wolf business? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's a really good way to, like, frame it. And not to mention, um, they're wearing the same clothes. Yes. <laughs> they have the same open on which adds to the to the issue of oh i think this is chick right you know it's not just like a oh he's you know it's for the movie he's wearing a mask like no he's wearing the same clothes they have the same like stature <laughs> for all intents and purposes from a distance and when you're not seeing the full face right that's chick right right and what's funny is his mask has a snout and Talbot does not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also like Chick's line when they decide to go back into the castle, and Chick says, after what I've seen, there better not be any maybe. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, something else that's a good point is uh, the, they succeeded. They got Wilbur out. The, there was the, um, the two of them, and they got the doctor out of the, of the building. They go back for uh jane the the investigator right yeah they all four of them are good they're right next to the boat they can leave they go back for jane so there's this level of like joan that's what it is there's this level of like you know success and competent main characters where they did it the stealth mission worked they got him out but now they have to save somebody else who's still in there right right yeah i mean it just it, it it does get frustrating at that point but it works i think I well for me it's a change of pace from the okay look now we're gonna have another issue that's going to set us back from everybody getting out and then at the end you know maybe you know somebody's gonna get killed in the process but you know then at the end in the climax we escape the situation and get on the boat and leave like no we did it 
we have to do more. Right. 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 That's awesome. And I, I love when cool. the Frankenstein monster tosses Sandra out the window. <laughs> just like <laughs> just like Daniel in the last one. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my god, that's sort of becoming the signature move. And did you guys notice that Wilbur calls the monster Frankie at one point? Yeah. <laughs> Which, oh yeah. Yeah. I think that contributes to the public misconception of you know, one of the things right. we've been talking about, Spence, is how people sometimes refer to the monster as Frankenstein, and we're trying right. to figure out sort of where that comes from. And every so often there's a clue here and there that you could see how, it, if it gets into the public eye, that that's, you know, you, that's the misconception. I don't think that that's really what contributed heavily. I think there's a decent point of, uh, so, you know, here, here's the question. When did Dr. Frankenstein die he died in the first frankenstein movie so who the hell met the wolfman well that's what i said that it was frankenstein's daughter but well, yeah, yeah i mean we, I we think, talked I think about was, that yeah. yeah i think it was the whole point is like you know the the movie titles also give the implication that you know the monster is you know canonically speaking to them referred to as frankenstein as well which can hurt the hurt the the, the remembrance that it is the the doctor and then he's frankenstein's monster Right. That, that's what I was saying is we've been finding little clues here and there like that one that, that sort of you could see how after a while it just became part of the nomenclature where people just assumed the monster is. Because I was watching it with Charlene, um, one of the wolf movies or whatever, Frankenstein movies, um, when we were first doing this. And I said to her, I'm like, well, you know that you know Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster. And she's like, what? <laughs> I thought the Frankenstein was the monster. I'm like, no. <laughs> Well, you could you could probably argue too that this movie was probably many people's introduction to the uh, to Frankenstein's monster, and they probably had the misconception because this was like an easy movie to get introduced to all the monsters because it's funny, it's light, uh, versus the original movie, which you know they could have seen after the fact. It's you know that's probably very possible, right? And this one is called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no Dr. Frankenstein at all in this film. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, th- yeah, I think Universal is the ones who really pushed it. It's not just the, yeah. the referring to him in one, in one scene. Because it's, it's very reasonable when you're facing, you know, certain death and you know it's called Frankenstein's monster. What are you going to do? Right. <laughs> what are you going to be like, oh, Frankie, I'm sorry, Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> yeah. No, no, just... Just go. Just go just with go. it, yeah. Yeah, just go with it. Did you notice, did you guys notice too, the minor blooper at the end when uh, Glenn Strange is turning his head on the table and the, the neck bolt is kind of, the makeup is pulling away from his neck? No, oh, I didn't notice that, no. <laughs> I always notice that. I That's don't know funny. It's, That's it's funny. one of those things that stands out to me for some reason. But mm. um, So one of the last things I wanted to mention about this movie was um, I, I actually rewatched uh, Freddy vs. Jason recently, and it made me think of the end of this movie. And then when I was watching the end of this movie, it made me think of the end of Freddy vs. Jason, right. which ends up on a dock with what, Chris? A fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Another these movies, fire. These movies are not complete without a fire. <laughs> um, so I thought, and I think if I do understand correctly that that Freddy vs. Jason, there were scenes that were inspired by this movie. And that yeah, I heard one that too. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, we got the ultimate surprise at the very end. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie, it's 90 years old, for God's sakes. Um, or almost. Uh, Vincent Price. And like I said before, I remember my family going nuts at the end. That was a great uh, ending. That's... Great setup for the next movie, which was Abbott Castell Meet the Invisible Man. Yes. So. Although they're not the same characters, unfortunately. 
Right. Yeah. True. Yeah. It's like true. it's like yeah they set it up but sort of not really sort <laughs> right. of and yeah he's a boxer in that movie not Vincent Price. Oh okay. Yeah. Um, I mean yeah. this is a good this is a, here's a point of contention with Freddy versus Jason. Um, you know the monster simply walks after them. <laughs> That's all he does. He just kind of chases them. I mean he's exceptionally strong and they're in a confined space so they're running from him. They have to, like, close the door, and they have to avoid the vampire and werewolf going toe-to-toe, like, three feet away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would like to point out. I, I, I want to know, because Bela Lugosi seemed to have a good opinion based on what you guys just said. I want to know what he thought of, okay, I'm going to play Dracula. There's going to be this good fight scene. Yeah, it's a horror <laughs> comedy, but I can work with it. All right, so you need to have some sort of, like, way to fight the wolfman. You're going to throw two plants at him. <laughs> <laughs> two potted plants going towards it and you're going to miss both of them that's a great point right? Good. Yeah. that's what that's what's going to happen <laughs> oh my god that's so funny so oh and one thing i did want to mention too was that uh the monster simply walks after them like you said spence like jason where he just walks and <laughs> they run yeah <laughs> It works though in this context, right? Like they—they're not—they're not stupid. They don't trip. They don't fall. They—they they put. Right. They—you know—they—they they barricade a door. And it turns out the door opens the other way. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right, that's reasonable. That—that that can happen. We've all made that mistake. Right. And it—it's it, a funny. That's—that's a, that's a good point where they opened the door that way too. Right. It doesn't like open both ways. They opened the door and like they cl- towards them closed it barricaded the door and then somehow forgot that he's just going to open it. <laughs> oh my um, God. Something to mention is the, the clever, res- the clever option of he thinks I'm Dracula. Yes. <laughs> it's a good uh, response. You know, dumbass. <laughs> I, I, I think there's, I think there's, there's a point to, to point to make where this is a, a, the beginning of horror really in the genre, right? You know, they've had at this point close to 20 years of it. And this is re- this is a horror comedy, but it has a serious plot, and the characters are not incompetent. They're just silly. Right. They make good right. choices when they're actually faced with a threat. You know, they go to barricade a door. Okay, that doesn't work. They go to barricade another door. Okay, he bashes through this one. Right. Uh, you know, they're running from him. He, you know, they, they lock, like, Chick unlocks the gate. He reaches under and does that, and then closes the gate and locks it. Monster's just strong enough to push through it, but still... Yeah, <laughs> like it is just, they don't just run past it. Oh no, we leave the door open for him to chase us, and it's like. <laughs> That's the thing. You're absolutely right. It definitely avoids typical horror movie tropes, um, where characters do something stupid. Yeah. You yeah. Know? There's no there's no real poor choices. There's you know moments where they they miss something or whatever, but that happens. There's there's no like. Ugh, I hate that trope. I hate that so much. Unless you establish a character as making poor choices and is is you know destined to get killed, these characters not always done that. They're you know they're the main guys. We want to see them do at least a smart thing, or at the very least, the smartest thing to do. Right. What they have. Exactly. Right. And they mm-hmm. they do that. They do that many times. And I'm I'm you know I think that that's something that people my age are not going to notice because it's I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that's going to go over their heads because they're just so used to characters making dumb decisions that they're just going to kind of accept what's going on. Right. More than more than acknowledge <laughs> the fact that, oh, wow, this like really this really is different from what I've right. seen. And that's more of a trope that's come from the 80s slasher films, I think. Mm, I, for the most true. part. I mean, you know, uh, Ellen Ripley does a hell of a job. <laughs> right. In Alien. Yeah, that's, that's mm. such a great one. 
So final thoughts on Evan Costello meet Frankenstein. Chris. Um, I mean, this is a comedy masterpiece in my mind. Just funny from beginning to end. Uh, and also a great combination of comedy and horror. I mean, it's um, really not much else you could say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spence. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love it for, yes, the nostalgic feeling that I have with, you know, with, with this movie, having watched it at such a young age. But uh, more than that, you know, this movie is, is fundamentally, it's a good movie. It, yeah. it, you know, there's so many good things. There's so many good ca- good camera work. Um, there's a moment where when Franken's, uh, you know, Frankenstein's monster is on the table and, um, and the camera moves, I vaguely remember um, the camera moving as not the camera moving, but Frankenstein somehow willed his chair to move towards Wilbur. I, <laughs> I for some reason, believe that that was the, the, what was happening. And it wasn't until this viewing where I'm like, oh, you idiot, the camera moves. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I didn't say anything to my girlfriend, but I was just like very ashamed of my tiny brain at the time. Uh, so this, there's a lot of good to this movie. And something I think a lot of people my age uh look for and get upset about with older movies is uh the quality of the film in the sense that it's not very well you know it doesn't have a lot of fancy effects there aren't any computer generated monsters you can't have full transformations so you know for what it is is really good so you know if somebody in my age group can kind of look past that fact or at least acknowledge that this is you know 1948 they don't have fancy stuff right it's awesome yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. My favorite effect is Dracula turning into a bat and turning into a man. And I said that to my girlfriend as the movie was playing. I was like, oh, this is my favorite effect. Watch. And mind you, I said that as we saw the bat flying. She's like, what? The, the rubber bat? I, I, I was like, no. I was like, no, 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 no. And then when she saw the full effect of them, you know, having uh, it was basically animated of him turning into Dracula. She's like, oh, that is cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, thank you. I'm not crazy. You know, Chris, you mentioned earlier that the animation reminded you of Charles Fleischer, and I, I agree with that, and I also, it made me think of, if you've ever seen the old Superman serials, when he goes to fly, he leaps yeah. up into the air and becomes a cartoon for a second and flies off. Right. And then he's back to being a live-action guy again. That's true, yeah. Well, the other thing, too, that Max Fleischer would do is um, he also would work with live-action models. Like, he would have... Um, a, a camera moving around a live-action model with animation over that, and it would have, like, a very three-dimensional look. Uh, yes. And um, Rotoscoping? I, I, sort of like rotoscoping, yeah. It's kind of like that. But there would be a cartoon character over the shot of the model, is what I'm saying. Like, the, right. the animation would be... The cartoon character would be right on top of the live-action footage. Um, and it gave it, like, an interesting look. And I thought I saw that here when the bat is flying away uh and they're in the, the, the and and the castles in the background and i'm like i'm like i'm like oh i'm like and that's that's another reason why i thought it was max flasher at first and i looked it up it was walter lance but i think they all use the same techniques yeah i think so, so. and it was at the cutting edge you know they were just they were the first to do all this stuff so yeah um this is hands down one of my all-time favorite movies uh i know there's a lot of contention out there about whether it's considered canon or whether the comedy cheapens the monsters but i don't really give a shit about any of that it's to me it's canon i love it i think the balance of horror and comedy is well done well played it's it's well shot the acting is great the story is solid um would i have liked to have maybe seen more monster battles yeah probably but you know this payoff made up for the last two films in which we didn't get much of a monster matchup so you um. know 
Yeah, there's also, I mean, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman has a very satisfying fight scene. So we didn't need to see those two go toe to toe again. Yeah, I would have liked to see the rematch, but that one, that fight scene is so short in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. It's like, ugh, I wanted more. Yeah, 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 because that scene was only like, it wasn't even 10% of the movie. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I classify that as, you know, I I think it's satisfying to watch because you're waiting for it. You're waiting for the two of them to finally go toe to toe. I mean, right. People give the the 2014 Godzilla movie shit, but you know, say what you want. It's satisfying when you see all the stuff at the end. So I think it's yeah. in that category. Yeah, I would agree with that. No. Yeah. Well, folks, thanks for joining us for this three-part installment where we wrapped up the Frankenstein series from Universal. The next time we return to this ongoing series about getting people into horror movies, we're going to move into the 1950s as we tackle the Creature from the Black Lagoon trilogy. And as promised, here's the list of notable Universal horror films from the 30s and 40s. It's a real long list, so I'm only just going to read the films that we've covered so far, and I'll post the the full list in the show notes. So we've got Dracula from 31, Frankenstein, same year, The Mummy, 1932, The Invisible Man, 33, Bride of Frankenstein, 35, Dracula's Daughter, 1936, Son of Frankenstein, 1939, The Invisible Man Returns in 1940, as well in that same year we had The Invisible Woman and The Mummy's Hand. Then we got The Wolfman in 1941, The Ghost of Frankenstein in 42, Invisible Agent in 42, and also The Mummy's Tomb in that year. Um, in 43, we've got Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, as well as Son of Dracula. Then House of Frankenstein in 44. The Invisible Man's Revenge, same year. Also that year saw The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse. And in 1945, we have The House of Dracula. And then 1948, the film we just talked about, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So go back and watch those films and then listen to our discussion on those. And, you know, check out some of the other ones on that list, too, which we will probably we may have special episodes here and there to talk about them. But thank you for joining us. Please keep sharing these movies with your loved ones. Okay, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorketing Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorketing.com. And you can find me on my website at storiesmotion.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at storiesinmotion. You can also visit our website, havenpodcast.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss... Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, check out the Patreon and T Public links to get some exclusive stuff. That's right, folks. And then is now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash Uncle Death One to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and hit that little bell there so you get all the notifications and share our video uh, versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. And don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.